mic check one, two, three. This is the Awoken Word Podcast, and I'm your host, Anudra Stogi. It's been a minute, or a few. It's 2023, and I'm sure some or many of you have been wondering, where the hell did he go? What's up with the podcast? All I can say is that in that time since we last connected, I've moved. I had to reset up the whole studio, and uh, along the way, all of the other amazing things in life, a growing family, kids that keep us on our toes, and a world that is as crazy as it's ever been. On top of all that, I really needed to reflect and recalibrate on what I want to share in this podcast and what form I want it to take. So that process is still ongoing. All of that said, I do have some great news in that I finally have a new episode for you, which is kind of a lie because it's not really a new episode. This was a conversation that I actually recorded a few years ago, and I was actually quite heartbroken to find that when I started to put this together, the audio from the recording and from that conversation had been lost, or so I believed. After moving and resetting up the studio and going through all my hard drives and all my backups, I actually found the backup of a backup that I didn't realize that I had. From that, I was able to rescue most of the audio of the conversation. Not all, but most. And although this conversation is old in terms of when it happened, it's new in that it's as timely as ever today. It doesn't take into account some of the recent events that have happened in the world. This was obviously a a pre-COVID conversation, so that doesn't show up. Now, I'm really pleased that of all the conversations to pick back up on with the podcast, it happens to be this one. My guest in this episode is Mugabe Bienkia. Mugabe is an author, a poet, an occasional rapper. You'll find out in the conversation what occasional rapper means. We actually cover a whole bunch of ground on everything from the process of being a creative, on digging deep to find out what story you actually want to tell. We talk about what it's like walking a mile in his shoes. So what is it like to be a black man in different parts of the world? I would say that Mugabe is a bit of an international man of mystery, He's lived in eight different countries, and keep in mind, that was at last count back when this was recorded. It's been some years since I've seen him, and I imagine that number may have actually increased since then. We talk a lot about health and some of the challenges in life and in health that Mugabe has faced, and yet I think you'll find it was a humbling experience. I was certainly humbled to kind of hear from him about his level of gratitude and his positivity and his perspective on being thankful for all that he does have, and in being thankful for all the good days. As you'll hear pretty soon into this conversation, Mugabe has one of the most curious and interesting laughs you may ever hear in your life. I know that's a big statement to make, but trust me, it's worth hearing. And for all those who have uh, reconnected and perhaps are surprised, maybe even pleasantly, that this episode is showing up in your app. Thank you for being there. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for all the support. And thank you for the patience. I now give you my conversation with Mugabe Bienkia. 
Here we are in Toronto. I am with the man himself, Mugabe Benkia. Am I saying that right? Benkia. Benkia. There you go. I wasn't sure. <laughs> All good. So, Mugabe, you're a writer and a poet and an occasional rapper. Now, I don't know if that means you rap on occasion, you rap for occasions. What is an occasional rapper? <laughs> I, I say an occasional rapper is someone who... Raps, I, I guess both for occasion, both on occasions and occasionally. Um, I used to take my rapping a lot more seriously, and I used to like consider myself a rapper. But um, honestly, the whole reason behind my rapping was to like earn my older brother's respect, who is a rapper and okay. who, like and who's like an amazingly talented rapper. And the minute that I had like earned his respect, and he was like, "Yo, you're actually pretty good at this. Like, why don't you open for me for a show?" I was like what's the point of me continuing to rap if like I've achieved what I wanted to. And so okay. nowadays I only occasionally rap. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And have you kept the respect or? Um, yes, I have kept the respect. No, yeah, yeah. He, he, he actually wants me to feature on a track or two of his, because like I still do it, you know, I just don't do it publicly anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now I'm a lot more of a, of a silent, uh, you know, quiet to myself rapper. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More uh, of an uh, inner rapper. Exactly. Because I haven't publicly released any music in a while, but, I, but, but I've been rapping. <laughs> so we met, what, a year, two years ago? Yeah. Something yeah, like that. Shabba Shur. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I can't remember if it was a night you were featuring or a night I was featuring at, at Banu's show. I think we met the night you were featuring, and then I think you, I think you came back for the night I was featuring. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, 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 I, yeah. I know I'd seen you perform, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and you're kind of hard to forget between... Uh, between you know, those the the glasses which we were just <laughs> talking about and uh, the signature laugh, uh, I'm glad that you're finally here because uh, this has been kind of a minute in the making. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so, no. who are you? Like, I see you as a writer mm-hmm. and occasional rapper, mm-hmm. and uh, I've seen that you're kind of floating between countries at points. Mm-hmm. International man of mystery, we were kind of <laughs> talking about here, and then you kind of drop this out of the blue mention that you used to live in Dhaka. Mm-hmm. Who the hell are you? <laughs> what, what makes you Mugabe? Uh, what makes me me? Ish, that's a loaded question. I would say at the very bare bones of it, Mugabe, the name means the giver. Um, and so my ancestors, meaning my grandmother, like gave me that name. And she like said that I was predispositioned towards being a generous individual. And that um, like for some reason she could just tell when I was a baby that like I was going to be generous. And I don't know what that means um, because, like, it's hard to, like, call myself generous because I don't really see myself in that way. But a couple people do. And so in terms of, like, who I am and what makes me tick, it's honestly other human beings and, like, animals and plants and loved ones. And I just, I have been given a lot by this world and I have been also stripped away. Um, A lot has been stripped away from me. And so I just try my level best to um, even the playing field where I can, wherever I can possible for those people who have less than others. And I try my best to leverage whatever I've been given to aid those who have not been given as much and 
to try to fight for the rights of those who have not been given as much and to um, just try to live my life as lovingly and as positively as possible, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's not something that you hear nearly enough about right now in, mm-hmm. a, in a very kind of tumultuous, polarized time. Mm-hmm. We live in a different time, mm-hmm. or maybe every generation says that they live in a different time. We're in a place right now where we have more access to technology, more access to each other, more mm-hmm. access to, to people, and yet we're in many ways more isolated mm-hmm. than we've ever been. Mm-hmm. And it's this weird paradox that we've kind of found ourselves in. And uh, I'm a little bit older than you, just old enough to remember going to a library when mm-hmm. you need to write an essay, mm-hmm. remembering a world where not everyone had cell phones mm-hmm. and you didn't know where everyone was, you know, 24-7. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's easy to romanticize mm-hmm. that era, but there's also a lot of trade-offs. Like it's pretty awesome to mm-hmm. be able to connect with somebody across the world mm-hmm. today, like in a split second mm-hmm. over whether it's social media or YouTube mm-hmm. or to, you know, know that the person that, you know, you love, their flight has landed mm-hmm. or they've reached wherever they want to mm-hmm. reach. So we've got this kind of weird mix of things from what little I know about you. You know, you've had obviously some challenges and tribulations mm-hmm. in your life and yet you're really positive person and yeah. I'm, I'm curious like why you meet some people mm-hmm. and despite everything that they've gone through mm-hmm. or perhaps because of everything mm-hmm. that they've gone mm-hmm. through they are the sort of positive spirits that they are mm-hmm. what have been some of the challenges that you've come across that you, like if you were to think about in my life I've been given all of this great stuff mm-hmm. but where is that takeaway that you mentioned mm-hmm. um, in terms of my life I mean there have been multiple takeaways um and one of those like as much as i hate to call it a takeaway is it is a massive takeaway in like today's society was is being born black you know um (laughs) because like like i love my blackness and i'm super proud of being black and i'm super you know um very very happy that i am the person that i am but we live in a world where whiteness is seen by a lot of people as superior to blackness and is like on the racial hierarchy, like superior to blackness, not inherently superior, but superior in terms of like the way society views it. Right. You know, like I'm not saying white people are better than black people. (laughs) Just for the record. I'm not a KKK, you know, sympathizer. Um, uh, No, no white power in here. Um, but I'm glad we cleared that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but like, I mean, I know the way I move through the world and like I've lived in a bunch of different places, places that are predominantly uh, black, places that are not predominantly black. And in every single place that I've lived in, I've been treated as an inferior because of my blackness. And so like that is like one of like, you know, the ways that like I have been like marginalized in this world. Um, outside of that, um, I'd say the two like my two main like tragedies in life in terms of like personal things that I faced was um, so I had three strokes over the course of my life. Uh, one when I was nine and two when I was 22. And those massively changed the ways that I moved through the world. Uh, my first stroke paralyzed the right side of my body completely. So I couldn't move um, my hand or my legs or even like my right eye or the right side of my mouth. Um, and I was like bedridden for a couple of months and like going through physical therapy, going to doctors, trying to get it figured out. 
everyone was like, we don't know what happened to you because you're nine. You know, like strokes normally happen in people who are 60 plus with like 40 years of smoking under their belt. And I was a nine year old. I never, you know, <laughs> most nine year olds have never touched a cigarette. And I was, I had never touched a cigarette, you know, right. um, I was just playing with my friends, just living my best life. Um, and so like the doctor said I was going to die by the end of the year. And so I was like, my parents were wrestling with that and trying to figure out what was I was going through and they were shielding me from a lot of like the mental and emotional effects of like the fact that I just had a stroke and they were all like, oh no, it's going to get better. Don't worry. Just like do what the doctors tell you to, which I'm grateful for because as at nine years old, I wasn't able to handle, you know, the fact that, oh, the doctors said I was going to die by the end of a year, you know? Um, and then uh, my dad died when I was 13, which was another huge like shock because um, we were all really close and um, with my dad dying meant... Um, my fa- my family's position um in terms of like financial and uh socioeconomic class went with him uh because it was a single income household mm-hmm. completely different um social circumstance you know like having to share a bedroom with seven people cockroaches rats snakes like it was very very different from what i was used to and then i had two more strokes when i was 22 which massively shifted things as well and were those like in succession were those close to each other like, within what? a week of each other yeah yeah, which is why, which is why, like, I lump them together. Like, currently, I walk with a slight limp, but like, walking is even like a huge achievement because I mm-hmm. couldn't walk for a while. I was that's in a no wheelchair. Limp, yeah, I've seen you. That's, that's straight up swag. <laughs> thank you, thank you. My friends used to call me the pimp with a limp. <laughs> but yeah, um, I've been through a lot. I mean, like, even though like I'm usually smiling and happy because. I think like one of the reasons that I'm so grateful is because I've been in a lot worse positions than I am right now. And so I'm always grateful that I am able to do something more than what I used to be able to do or more than what I am able to do like on an average week. Right. Mm. And so like my health fluctuates from week from day to day, from week to week, because like strokes, brain damage is very complicated, like um it's very difficult to treat and very difficult to stabilize and so for example uh, monday literally two days ago i had like a ridiculous um, seizure and i was out of commission for most of monday and then tuesday woke up went to another seizure and so i wasn't sure if i was going to be able to make it to this interview but then today i woke up and i was like oh like i'm actually like the seizure like hangover and the fugue and everything that puts my body through like has dissipated so like i'm good to go the way that my health fluctuates just takes teaches me that you know like shouldn't take things for granted and it's Mm. like i might be down monday tuesday and then it's like wednesday thursday friday i'm good so i'm just gonna try to do everything that i can during that wednesday thursday friday because i don't know how long it's gonna last have they ever been able to find the underlying cause for the strokes um, for the strokes and the various complications, they have a couple theories, but they're not 100% sure on the underlying cause because basically what the doctors explain, I've been to like over 100 different doctors in my life because it's been a complicated case. And what they've explained to me is that like whatever I'm dealing with is something that they're doing research in right now. And they're hoping to have like answers for me maybe like 50 years down the line. But like it's one of those things that like, the human brain is beyond um, medical knowledge currently. Right. Um, yeah. And whatever I'm dealing with is one of those things that like hopefully with research and with, you know, like applications, they will have some answers down the line. But right now what they can tell me is there's one of the blood vessels in my brain that does a weird loop that it's not supposed to. They're not sure why that is. Um, they could go in and, you know, like 
operate on it and get further answers, but there'd be an 80% chance of death. And so I'm like, nah, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, like, like uh, those odds don't look very friendly to me. And they're like, yeah, you know, like, we just wanted to present the option. And I'm like, why would you even present that option? Like 20% chance of survival? Like I would rather survive as I am right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're like, but we could get answers. And I'm like, what's more important? Answers are my life. And for for quite a few doctors, answers is more important, you know? Right. And so, yeah, it's one of those things that they said there's something going on with the neurotransmitters and something going on with the blood as it's pumping through my brain. They're not sure exactly what, but um, they're hoping to have some answers. Um, but I might be gone by then, so we'll see. Wow, there's a lot in there. I'm actually a little surprised that you started with the first takeaway as uh, as blackness. I didn't really expect that to be <laughs> the, the place to start or even the, uh, a place at all. You've lived in North America. Yes. You've lived in Africa. Yes. You, sp- you split your time. Uh, and that sounds actually really stupid to even say Africa. Like, it's a whole continent with many countries and multiple cultures. But, you spend time in, in, in Uganda. But in, I'd like to thank you for saying North America and then saying Africa, because that sets, you know, the two continents as equal. Right. Because a lot of people say, you know, Canada and Africa, you know? Yeah. You yeah. know, which is, which is completely, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it, it's, yeah. it's kind of ridiculous because we, I mean, if you step far enough away, it's Earth, mm-hmm. right? And then we somehow conveniently will um, hone in on specific countries, but then leave someone else as a complete mm-hmm. continent, which mm-hmm. is kind of ridiculous. And, you know, my, my own experience here, like even though I was born and raised in Canada, mm-hmm. when I go back to India, mm-hmm. I'm Canadian. Mm-hmm. When I'm here, I'm the Indian mm-hmm. guy. I, I almost have to wonder, like here maybe to many people you're black, mm-hmm. maybe to a few folks you're the African guy. Mm-hmm. But when you're in Kampala... Mm. You're Ugandan. If you're traveling somewhere else in Africa, I, I, like where would you would you even put yourself with uh, some sort of national identity or cultural identity? So, in terms of national identity and cultural identity, like it's interesting for me because so I grew up moving around a lot. So, like I can just give you like a little like backstory into like um, my life, like in terms of countries. Um, so, I have Ugandan citizenship. And so by that, I am like tied to Uganda, like legally, right? Okay. Because uh, I'm a Ugandan citizen. But I was born in Nigeria and have my birth certificate, like being Nigerian. And I could apply for a Nigerian citizenship and get it like this. I just choose not to, honestly, because of the amount of like profiling that I get simply being born in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. If I had Nigerian citizenship, it would like um, up the ante because unfortunately, because of these, you know, Nigerian princes who scam these, like, people, you know, oh, I'm a rich Nigerian prince, could you please send me your bank account details, etc. Uh, because of that, Nigeria has an international reputation as being the home of, like, scammers and drug traffickers and human traffickers. And so, like, if you travel with a Nigerian passport, your chance of getting, like, profiled and stepped, you know, like, stepped aside for an additional processing or interrogation is, like, ridiculously high. Right. Uh, but I still have a lot of love and have a, a tie to Nigeria and my Nigerian heritage. And sorry, where in Nigeria were you born? Lagos. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born in Lagos. Um, and I've been wanting to go back because I, I left when I was three. And I haven't been back since. But I left with a name, which like I like two names, actually, which I like very, very cling strongly to. Um, my Yoruba name, because my parents had both Yoruba and uh, Igbo friends mainly, because those are the two um, dominant groups in Lagos. And so um, my Yoruba, like, aunties and uncles, like, my, my mom's and dad's friends gave me the name Olatokumbo, which means uh, wealth and happiness from a foreign land, 
which is very apt to like my life because like it's like you know like sort of like putting me in the perpetual box of being a foreigner you know right um and then my Igbo aunties and uncles gave me the name Mba which means uh one who is valid uh, which is another interesting name mm-hmm. um and so so when I was three um so my dad worked for the UNDP and so because of the nature of his work we moved around a lot every three or four years they assigned it to different countries so zero to three was in Nigeria three to six was in uh Khartoum Sudan Six to nine was in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Okay, uh, so that is the thing that caught me by surprise. Yeah. Like you just kind of casually dropped in Dhaka. How mm-hmm. did you end up there? Uh, my dad's work. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, like because like the way my dad's position was, um, they were worried. From from what my mom told told me, they were worried about like UN officials ending up in some government member's pocket if they'd land if they'd lived in a country for too long and they were too comfortable right mm. because like they'd had a lot of corruption scandals right. and they'd had a lot of people who were like you know like paid off etc so they were like all right so one way we'll f- battle this corruption is every three or four years we'll move these people to a different country so they don't get too comfortable so they don't end up in anyone's pocket okay yeah and and you weren't allowed to work in your home country either because there you know people right right yeah. but it's it's i mean it almost sounds like you're moving around in countries with a propensity for corruption in the first place right well yeah definitely ways, yeah. because also it's the united nations development program right, right. Yeah, and yeah. so like they're working on like you know like like clean water and um you know like women's education and um gender-based violence and um getting people like you know, like t- to make more than a dollar a day, like all these social development issues that happen in corrupt countries, you know, right, right. and it's because of the corruption that they're happening, you know, but they're still trying their best. to. And sorry, how old were you when you were in Dhaka? I was six. Um, and then we left when I was nine. And do you remember that time? Yeah, 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 no, yeah. I remember Dhaka. Yeah, Dhaka was a blast. Yeah, um, yeah, the, the, like, like I loved it because, um, so like, Dhaka has a huge cricketing culture, right? Right. Um, and because of that, like, and because we were one of the only like, well, one of the only black families in Bangladesh at the time, because there were not a lot of like, I can't imagine, <laughs> what been, right? Like, <laughs> they're not because like, we were there about 1998, two thousand one. There were not a lot of black people in Bangladesh at that time. And so everybody just assumed that because we were black and in Bangladesh, we were related to Brian Lara, the famous West Indian cricket player, because that was their, you know, like reference in terms of blackness. And so whenever we'd be like walking down the street as a family, they'd assume my dad was Brian Lara and that we were Brian Lara's kids. And so we got preferential treatment everywhere. Wow. Because <laughs> they were like, oh, Brian Lara, Brian Lara, oh, Brian Lara's kids. Like, oh, please. Like, like we got like pushed up to like, you know, like, like for first class dining everywhere. We got like reserved tables. Wow, this is like the one instance <laughs> in history of black privilege. Exactly. Right it was there. amazing. Wow. Like my brother. Let's, uh, let's- my brother was on a train and he got bumped up to first class. Like I, I got free stuff all the time because I was Brian Lara's son. You know, um, it, was, it was so okay. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm actually really curious to deconstruct this mm-hmm. a little bit. Do you think that had had there been no cricketing culture or had Brian Lara not been a factor in all of this, do you think your experience would have been different? Oh, definitely, because like there is also at the same time a large amount of anti-blackness that okay. is inherent in Desi culture. You know, right, like, yeah. like like like. Like fair and lovely, you know, like mm-hmm. all these whitening creams, like, uh, like there was all this Brian Lara thing, which is a funny anecdote. But at the same time, there was like people trying to like rip away my skin to see if you know the blackness comes off, you know, trying to see if like oh it was just dirt that was caked in there, you know, uh-huh. or people like grabbing my hair because they'd never seen or felt the hair of that 
texture before. People were literally ripping hairs out of my head, you know? Which is crazy because you can find people throughout the subcontinent mm-hmm. that are even darker than you mm-hmm. are, right? Yep, yep. But yeah, like, no, there's like, and there's like a lot of like, you know, like, like monkey chants and bananas being thrown like, like at me, like, you know, so like, 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 I'm not saying that Dhaka was a, you know, like utopian, like post-racial society. No, Dhaka was a very racist place. (laughs) (laughs) Glad glad we cleared that up. Yeah. Uh, No, the the Brian Lara was just a funny little, like, uh, one of the perks. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, sorry, we've got Nigeria, Mm -hmm. Sudan. Yes. Bangladesh. Yes. Now, where next? Uh, after Bangladesh, we moved to Cambodia. Okay. Yes. Yes. You are international man. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's not my dad. It's not. It's not me. Because like I was a, I was a kid. I was, I was just going along with the flow, you know. Because like my dad's like we're moving here. I was like okay. Like like I don't have a choice, you know. I I, I don't pay rent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we move, and it was all that I knew. And like because of like the systems that we were in. We were going to like a lot of international schools where a lot of people were in and out because a lot of the kids were like either kids of some like development worker or like some, you know, like international multinational bank or something where like they were moving around a lot too. And so there was that culture in the schools of like you're in for a couple of years, you're out. And so like it wasn't like a thing really. And do you find if you're around all other people who are transient, constantly Mm -hmm. moving around? How did you find building relationships with people? Like, was it easy to build them also knowing that this is temporary? I found it became harder as I grew up. Because when I was younger, um, like zero to six was easier to build the transient relationships. Um, And then when I hit like first grade, second grade, third grade, like like I didn't want to leave at the end of third grade to move to Cambodia. Um, and I remember like being like, I'm really going to miss my friends. Like, can't we stay? And my parents being like, nah, like, sorry, we have to go. And I was like, okay. And then when we left Cambodia, I remember being very, very, very torn up about that because I was in Cambodia from nine to 13, which are very formative years. Right. And like, I left at the end of seventh grade and I didn't want to leave it all out. Like I really wanted to stick around and like be with my friends. And so it was a lot harder on my older siblings who were older during all these moves rather than me who I feel like my youth shielded me from it a little bit. But I mean, thanks to the advent of like Facebook and all these like wonderful um, like social media things. Now I've been able to like reconnect with a lot of like my old friends and like, like my best friend from um, the fifth grade who I met, who's like African-American originally from Mali I met him in Cambodia, okay. and then we reconnected in Washington, D.C. four years ago, and now we're, like, super tight again. And, like, we hang out, like, every single time I'm in the city because uh, my brother lives there. And so, like, it's it's been beautiful, the, the way social media has been able to, like, reconnect me with a lot of my uh, childhood friends. Right, yeah. right. Okay, so Cambodia, mm-hmm. and then? And then Thailand uh, for a couple of months. Um, and the reason we're in Thailand for a couple months versus years was we got moved. So in Cambodia is where my dad fell sick. And my dad fell sick from this like mysterious illness, uh, which later on the, they figured out was um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and so he was away from us for a year. Um, he got like rushed out of the... He got, like, airlifted out of um, Cambodia to um, Singapore because they have better hospitals there. Right. Um, And so my mom went with him because she wanted to, like, make sure everything was all right. And so then I moved in with, like, 
I mean, this is one of the powers of community. And one of the reasons that I'm like indebted to people, because uh, I moved in with my best friend's parents who like took me in for a year and like became my parents. And they were like to my mom because they were friends with my mom. And so they were like, no worries. We'll take care of Mugabe. Like, we'll look after him. Like, you don't have to worry about him. Like, we got him, you know? Um, and so I moved in with them for a year while my mom was away in Singapore with my dad at the hospital. And then after that year was over, my dad started getting a little better. And so then okay. they, the, the UN moved him to Thailand, uh, where they said he can finish off his recovery and then he can start working there. Unfortunately, um, he ended up passing while he was there. And so then my family moved um, back home to Uganda. Um, and it was like home, but not really home because I never lived there before. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and then at some point you end up in Toronto. Yes. So I was in Uganda for five years. Uh, from 13 to 18, uh, which was a huge mixed bag because it's like, I look like these people, you know? Um, I don't talk like these people because I've never, you know, like lived here. You know, I, I don't have the accent and I don't speak the language either because my parents were wrongly advised by the schools to only speak English at home and not speak any of our, like, native languages, um, which they regret. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like a lot of like, why don't you, like, speak? speak the language like do you think you're too good for us all this stuff uh just because you know like you like have lived in other countries doesn't mean you're better than us and I'm like, I, I don't think i'm better than you like you know like like i wish i knew the language i just don't you know and very 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 very, very interesting time in my life because i was going to school with a bunch of like ridiculously rich ridiculously privileged kids mm-hmm. um because i was going to like you know like international school but this time the un wasn't paying for it and so my mom had to take out a ridiculous amount of debt to, like, put us through the best schools because my mom's like, education, 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 education is how you make it out, you know? Right. Um, and so going to school, these kids who, like, would, like, be like, oh, yeah, I just got back from Italy and I just got this, like, um, these, like, $200 pair of shoes. Check them out. And I'm like, yo, like, like after school, I'm going to go work at my mom's restaurant for, like, eight hours, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and babysit my little sister and then do my homework by candlelight and then go to sleep, you know? So very different right. uh, circumstances. But I made it out. <laughs> you know you are, we all yeah. made it out. We all made it out. My whole family made it out. So props to us. And when I was 18, I ended up getting a scholarship, a full ride to go to um, Kansas in the States. Um, so then I went over to the U.S., did my bachelor's in Kansas, um, graduated, um, and then got a fellowship to go to Michigan, um, went up to Michigan for six months, and that's when the two strokes happened, when I was 22. Okay. And so then I moved in to my sisters. I have a sister who was living in living and working in Washington, D.C. at the time, and so she took me in, and we were like just basically trying to figure out what's going on and trying to help me recover for like one and a half years. Um, and then when I was able to like function semi-independently, uh, my brother who was up in North York in Toronto, he was like, yo, I've seen, you know, you've been down with the sister for a while and, you know, y'all have been having a good time and I want some family time too. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like, come up and live with me. Um, I know you've been working on a book and like he's a rapper, singer, songwriter. And he was like, I need and want another like creative like source around me to like help inspire me and get me out of my rut because he was going through a little writing rut at the time mm-hmm. and he was like and like you know honestly like it would just be nice to have someone around the house right um and i was like uh and he was like you don't have to worry about rent just you know like couch is yours like f- there's food in the fridge like just, just come write. through yeah, yeah just come through and yeah. write and he's like just 
Papa Scott for a couple of months. And I was like, all right. So I took him up on that. And your sister and brother, they're older, younger? Um, you, well, you have an older brother, but your sister, is she older as well? Yes, yes. Okay. So I'm the fourth out of five children. Okay. Yes. So the oldest is a sister who is currently, how old is she now? 35. And she's currently based in Nairobi, Kenya. She's working there. Okay. Um, And um, oldest brother is 33. He's based out of Washington, D.C. He's working there. Um, Then I have the older brother in Toronto who's 31. Myself is 27. And then my little sister is 21. Okay. And she's in university. Wow. Yeah. Um, so eight countries, if I'm counting right, in total. I think so. I don't know. Uh, Nigeria, Sudan, Bangladesh, Cambodia, Thailand, Uganda, the States, and Canada. Yeah, that's eight. Yeah. That is a very global perspective during mm-hmm. like most of your formative life. Mm-hmm. When you think back about all the places you've lived and all the people that have been in and out of your life, mm. some are back in, Like, what have you noticed about people like in general like if you if you were to just say people are like this this is what makes us similar or different what would you say about that i would say honestly like the similarities that i've noticed about people from the different cultures and different um, regions that i lived in is that um people are curious people are very curious because like i have very often been the person who is not from wherever I'm living. Okay. You know, yeah. like like in Uganda, I am from Uganda, but people can tell by the way I like talk and dress and look that like I have definitely like spent like a large majority of my life outside of Uganda, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh yeah, you're Ugandan, but you're not really, you know? Right. Um, and so like by not being from wherever I am, I get a lot of people being like, oh, so like, you know, and I strike up a lot of conversations with people who, and especially people who are like native to a region, whenever I ask them back the same questions that they ask me, they go, oh, no, 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 like, like, I'm from nowhere interesting. I'm just from here, you know? And like, I'm always like, but here is super interesting because I'm here, you know, like I went out of my way to come to like, you know, like Lawrence, Kansas population of 100,000 where people where a lot of people are like, oh, no, I'm just from Lawrence. And it's like, Lawrence is an amazing town. Like Lawrence is super interesting. Like Shout out to Lawrence. (laughs) Yeah. Like Lawrence, Lawrence is the first small town that I ever lived in. Like I grew up in these megapolises, you know, like, like people think Toronto is a big city. Try coming to Dhaka, you know, try mm-hmm. coming to Lagos, you know, like, yeah. like, like I'm talking like 10, 20 million people in a yeah. city, you know. And so like when I moved to Lawrence, that was my first ever experience living in anywhere that had less than uh, less than two million people. And it was like, shoof, you know, this is a huge culture shift. This is like massively interesting. It's a huge dynamic shift. And I feel like if people don't really take the time to like be like, oh, like what is in my backyard is interesting because it's what you're used to. Mm. Because it's, you know, like like what you see every single day. But if you saw your own backyard from the perspective of a foreigner in the same way that you do when you travel and you're like, wow, this is super interesting. But the people who are from there like are like... It's so true because I find, uh, especially when I go to India, uh, my wife's family's in Mumbai, a lot of my family's like uh, around Delhi. Mm-hmm. When I go, I find, because there'd been so many years between me, I was nine when I went and then I didn't go again until I was 32. Mm-hmm. And 
once I got there, everything was interesting. Mm-hmm. Everything was fascinating. And, you know, I'm, you know, also, you know, I, I dabble in photography and mm-hmm. videography and all this stuff, constantly sampling sounds. Mm-hmm. And everything was interesting. Mm-hmm. The sound of a train was interesting. Mm-hmm. That dog walking down the alley mm-hmm. uh, was interesting. Mm-hmm. Everything is like visually so not necessarily beautiful in the in the classic sense of beauty, mm-hmm. right? But it was very different than what I was used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And I just found it fascinating. So I'm taking pictures about all this stuff. And people are like, what are you taking pictures of? That's just like a box or it's a mm-hmm. dog or whatever. It's just like, it, 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 was, it was nothing to them. Mm-hmm. And I think we do that with ourselves even internally too, yes. right? Like, I'm not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that really mean? Like, mm-hmm. let's unpack that a little bit. People go on these crazy long trips to try and discover themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think the, you know, that journey just becomes the backdrop for the inner journey, that narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And you end up discovering yourself. You could have just sat there all day and mm-hmm. figured out the same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know why we do that yeah. to ourselves. Yeah. Like, why don't we value ourselves enough to say, no, I am interesting. Mm-hmm. There is something worthwhile here. Mm-hmm. I don't know, because like, I would never call myself interesting. Like, you... you oh, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all that. <laughs> you learn nothing. <laughs> like, I'm guilty of it, too, you know? Like, like, like you, you called me interesting and, like, like when you call me the most interesting man in the world, or you, or you call me interesting, like, like, my internal response is to shrink. Um, yeah. And I, I, I feel like... one of the few uh, times I've seen a black man black. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh like 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 this person's complimenting me because I mean that's partially a cultural thing from my perspective though because like it was hugely ingrained in me by my mother and my father uh because it's a part of both of their cultures to be modest and be humble and not like not not feel yourself at all you know and like Mm -hmm. if you like move around like confident and like oh yeah i did this i did that look at me look at me you're viewed as like oh like look at that person that's a negative trait that they have but it's funny that interesting and modest are totally unrelated yeah you're right right. Mm -hmm. like interesting doesn't mean egocentric Mm -hmm. or arrogant right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean saying i'm interesting i'm interesting i'm interesting that's a different story right but Mm -hmm. I think we, we, we do that to ourselves. Like there's, I mean, we're 20 minutes into this and mm-hmm. it, it's, you've got no case, man, to say that you're not interested, <laughs> right? Like you literally have no case. <laughs> you've lived all over the world. Mm-hmm. Your experience is that of a human being mm-hmm. and you're black. Yes. And in much of the world, at least at the time that you went, you were probably the only black person around outside of your family, one right? Of few, like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. one, one of few. Mm-hmm. And here you are in Toronto and you're kind of floating between uh, Uganda and Toronto. Mm-hmm. And in today's age, as a black man with a beard. Um, Six foot. Yeah. You know, all, all, mm-hmm. you know, all, all those different things. Mm-hmm. Like, is your life today and how you see yourself in the world today different than you would have expected 10 years ago? Like, do you see the life of a, you know, a person who is black in today's world, you know, in some surprising way? Like, are should we be further along than we are? Are you unsurprised by this? We should be massively further along than we are right now. Um, yeah, like, like, when was it? Like, Friday, um, just, just this past Friday, um, I was at the pharmacy picking up my medication. And um, 
I'm standing there um, talking to, um, it was a Desi lady behind the counter. I'm talking to her and this like um, Filipina lady like runs in breathless and is like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I forgot my bag, forgot my bag. And everyone's like looking around, like being like, where's the bag? And the bag was like tucked in the corner, like right next to me. And I was like, oh, it's right there. And so she runs and grabs the bag. She's like, oh my God, like, I'm so like, um, like, thankful that like the bag was here Mm -hmm. um and then there's this like old white lady sitting down who looks over at me and like gives me side eye and says you're lucky no one stole anything (laughs) and i'm like really like i was the only black person in that whole pharmacy you know like and you really had to point me out and say you're lucky no one stole anything well i I saw that tweet and i I think you said the the pharmacist or whoever's behind the counter is Mm -hmm. she was daisy and you got a filipino woman who's here looking for the bag Mm -hmm. and that pecking order of racial hierarchy Mm -hmm. somehow solidified itself even in this old white woman's mind in an instant exactly how does that happen like it's it's ridiculous and like it, it really really hurts me because like I have had a lot of encounters with racism and and like race and like racialized, you know, uh, based like assaults and stuff throughout my life. And it's always been difficult for me to wrap my mind around why somebody would hate or be prejudiced towards someone off of something that is beyond their control. Uh, Because like whenever it's something within somebody's locus of control that I understand, you know, like. If you're hating on me because you don't like the sneakers I wear, I'm like, all right. You know, like, you just don't like my sneakers. Sure. You know? yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I'm not talking about, like, hatred in terms of, like, a massive, you know, but, 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 like, in terms of, like, looking at me some type of way because I'm wearing some sneakers. Like, all right. You know, like, like, yeah. like, like, like I chose to wear these sneakers. You don't like this brand. That's all right. But when it's something that you're literally born with, like, something completely beyond your control, whether that be, like, sexuality or gender identity or gender or race, like, that to me makes no sense. Like, I've, you know, like, had, you know, like, been arrested a couple times for simply walking down the street while black. You know, I've had guns pulled to my head. And, like, it makes no sense, but it makes me move through the world a certain type of way. And it makes me move through the world very, very cautiously and very, very hesitantly because, like... I could die very, very easily. Mm-hmm. You know what is interesting? For whatever reason, Canadians in general, we, we seem to operate on this high horse, mm-hmm. uh, at least relative to the neighbors to the south. Mm-hmm. And I find that people here don't think that racism exists to the extent that it actually does. Mm-hmm. And... To a large extent, I can't fault most people that think that because in their lived experience, it might not be the case, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, if you're white in this country, you're probably not going to deal with it mm-hmm. unless maybe you're in some in some very, very deeply ethnic neighborhood or mm-hmm, something. And even then, it's not really necessarily racism per yeah. se. You know, if you happen to be from certain uh, certain ethnic or racial groups, you might face it from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're Aboriginal in this country, you're not even in the conversation, mm-hmm. which is just sad. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they've, you know, the Aboriginal people have been pushed so to the fringe mm-hmm. of this that, you know, we all showed up here later on, right? Some by choice, some not by mm-hmm. choice, whatever. But they were here already, mm-hmm. and yet no one even includes them in it. Mm-hmm. But I find that there's this idea that, in particular, the level of anti-black mm. racism isn't as bad as it is in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I, I can't say statistically whether that's true or not, mm-hmm. but like having enough black friends mm. and being in proximity of some of their experiences, definitely not living any of those experiences. Mm-hmm. I've lived my own set of experiences as a brown man in this country, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't put those anywhere near what I'm seeing still day to day with with friends. Do you think that we're just lying to ourselves when we say, no, we're past that here? Or is it that we don't want to confront the fact that we still got real issues? I think it's the latter. Yeah. I think, what's it called? Um, Because, like, when I talk with my white Canadian friends about, like, you know, like, Canadian racism and my experiences and stuff, a lot of them are aghast, you know? And they're aghast in the way like they had never heard this from anyone before in their life. And they're aghast in the way that they like are completely taken aback. And to me, that shows that because I know that they do have other black friends. And so that shows that their black friends are not telling them what they go through because I know that their black friends are going through the same stuff as as I'm going through. Mm -hmm. And so it's a question of do their black friends not feel comfortable enough around them to you know like speak openly Mm. and honestly around them or is it that they haven't done the best job of like creating that space where like you know like it's open and honest and you should feel comfortable enough to like share because like when I'm in spaces that are more like predominantly people of color predominantly black people like there is that more openness um, rather than like when like it's a white dominant space you know right and so like honestly think yeah that like a lot of Canadians don't want to confront or don't want to like deal with the fact that you know like like racism exists and it's out there and like it's a thing and like it's something that like we can actively dismantle and unpack Mm -hmm. but it's something that affects all of us and it's something that like white people leverage a lot of privilege from in the same way that I leverage a lot of privilege from being a man and like sexism exists and patriarchy exists and like I'm not gonna deny that you know Uh, but like I feel like it's like it's a defensive topic because a lot of white people feel like if I'm saying racism exists and you like leverage privilege from it, that I'm calling them a racist. And they're like, no, mm-hmm. no, no, but I'm not racist. You know, right, like, right. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, like, this is not about you. Like, like, yeah, you, you know, like stop centering yourself. Stop making it about you. Like, like get yourself out of the picture. You know, like we're talking about a bigger issue here. I think part of it from like I end up having these type of conversations a lot. And I'm also fully willing to call out the fact that the racism is not just from white people towards everyone mm-hmm. else. Everybody's racist to some extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you you kind of touched on it. You know, there's racism in the Desi community, mm-hmm. in the South Asian community. There's racism everywhere. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, a lot of that racism is anti-black racism mm-hmm. within the South Asian community, within the East Asian community. For a lot of people, it's uncomfortable to say that one group of people who might not be top of the food chain Mm -hmm. is also perpetuating some of the same Mm -hmm, things, mm -hmm. but let's just call a spade a spade. Mm -hmm. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. But I find within the black community, like, sure. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. like purely off of blackness itself. Like, like what's it called? There's the whole like light skin versus dark skin Mm -hmm. and that whole, you know, debacle and like, like it's everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And I find when this conversation comes up with, people who are of different backgrounds. So if I had this conversation with someone who is Chinese or Cambodian or whatever, mm-hmm. there's some level of culpability that they don't necessarily personally feel for it mm-hmm. because they're also the victims of mm-hmm. some degree of racism mm-hmm. and prejudice. Mm-hmm. 
But when you talk to somebody who is white, there's not really much of an out to say that they are the victim of something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that when we raise these issues, sometimes people take it, like you're saying, personally, Mm -hmm. and it plays into this personal guilt Mm -hmm. when that's really not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is that we recognize this is a problem Mm -hmm. that we all need to do something Mm -hmm. about because we're all actually in this. Mm -hmm. If if one person is suffering, then we're all suffering. Mm -hmm. And... The only times where I've seen it really, really clearly hit home is when um, there's this one woman I met. She's white. Mm -hmm. Her uh, son is black. Mm -hmm. And there's many nights where she's been freaked out. She doesn't know if he's going to make it home. Mm -hmm. Good kid. Mm -hmm. Goes to school. Does Mm -hmm. normal everyday kid stuff. Mm -hmm. I think he's 20, 21, something Mm -hmm. like that. And uh, I think he had been pulled over by the cops once. He's been carded, all of this Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And... For her, never having lived that life, mm-hmm. but now seeing it with her son mm-hmm. that she loves as much as any mother mm-hmm. loves her son, she you, like you see that proximate conflict mm-hmm. with her, right? Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't have to be that close to home for mm-hmm. people to get it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I find when I have these conversations with people, I'm like, okay, let's pretend it's maybe not as bad as the worst stories that you're hearing, mm-hmm. but it's still bad enough, mm-hmm. right? It's still not the type of experience you want to have your neighbor or your friend go through on a daily mm-hmm. basis. So all of this sort of in everyday life, and then what was it last week or the week before, suddenly we find that our prime minister mm-hmm. is rocking blackface mm-hmm. or brownface. I mean, that wasn't brownface. Let's be, let's be real here. He's rocking blackface mm-hmm. on at turban. least two or three occasions mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's a terrible costume. Mm-hmm. There's no need for blackface. Mm-hmm. And... This is not a prime minister that gets busted for doing this in the 60s mm-hmm. uh, when he was doing it in the 40s. Mm-hmm. This is a prime minister in 2019 mm-hmm. being busted for something that happened in 2001 mm-hmm. when I would hope that pretty much anywhere in the world, there's a level of awareness about this, that that's just not cool, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I wonder like as a, as a, as a person living here who is black, like w- when you saw that, like what did you feel about that? Oh, like I wasn't surprised, you know, like, okay. yeah, like, like, like as sad as it may be, like, like I saw it and I was like, oh, you know, but like, I wasn't surprised because like, like I've seen white people doing, you know, blackface and brownface and all sorts of caricatures like since, since I was a child, you know? And so like, that's something that like, doesn't surprise me. Okay. Um, and with Trudeau, like him personally, like it didn't really surprise me because like, look at him, look at the way, like. I mean, he's a politician, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. like, like he's a politician who grew up in a political family and really there should have been like somebody like out there, like cleaning up his like past, you know, and like, like, like this shouldn't have come out now. I, I was more surprised at the timing that it came out than, than the fact that right. it existed, because like if he had this level of dirt on him, it should have come out of the first election, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so the fact that it came out now was a surprise. But the fact that he did it, that doesn't surprise me because these are the same kids who I went to college with. Like I know kids who did blackface like they're not friends of mine, you know, but like I'd see them in the dorms in blackface and I'd be like, what are you doing? And they'd be like, Ugh. and then they'd run to the bathroom and get all awkward. And th- I went to college 2010, 2014, you know? And so, like, if it's still going on till this day, and these are going to be the same people who are going to be running for office, these random kids who I bumped into in the, the dorms, you know, then, like, why would it be surprising that it happened in 2001? Why do you think people do blackface? I don't know. Because, like, like I had this conversation with my brother, um, and, like, it's like, 
I have dressed up as white characters for Halloween. Like, I went mm-hmm. as Clark Kent for Halloween. Yeah. Did I paint my face white? No. Because, like, like why would... Like, that yeah. thought would never even yeah. cross my <laughs> it's mind. It's such like, a stretch. You, you know, like, in order to be Clark Kent, then I have to, like, you know, get my button up, put my Superman shirt underneath it, get my glasses, you know? Like, yeah. uh, uh, my reporter hat. Like, Clark Kent is not... A, uh, I mean, a costume is not a color, you know? And, like, I've never seen it that way. And so I honestly have a lot of trouble wrapping my mind around why somebody would actually like paint their skin a different color in order to embody a costume. Yeah, I, I don't understand that either. Like you would have to go through a lot of trouble. Let's be real. This is it's North America. You go to Halloween. I mean, before Black Panther, mm-hmm. there's really no kind of common ethnic or black character that you would necessarily be. Like if you were a fireman, you are a fireman. Mm-hmm. If you're a nurse, you're a nurse. Mm-hmm. If you're Superman, you're Superman. Mm-hmm. And if you're if you're a black kid or you're a brown kid and you're Superman, then you're just black Superman. Exactly. Like that. Yeah. It's, it's no, just yeah. that. I went as Black Robin in the second grade. Like, and everyone knew I was Robin. It wasn't like any, you know, like I didn't have to go white to be Robin. To the level of effort it takes to do that. Like, okay, I've I've seen you know people dress up as like a space alien or Shrek or Hulk or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. go green. Yeah. Okay, I kind of get that, but like, but but that's a color that doesn't exist on the human spectrum. You know, that's like yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Like if you want to paint your face purple or like green, like go for it. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, there's no reason. I, I've never seen anybody of color in my entire life being in this country, especially around Halloween or crazy parties or anything. I've never seen someone go and put on like white paint no, on their skin. For the sake. I actually don't understand the underlying driver for mm-hmm. that. I, you know, it's funny because the, the Trudeau thing happened and uh, I think I was a little bit, I, I can't say I was shocked, mm-hmm. a little disappointed, mm-hmm. not so much even upset, mm-hmm. uh, surprised definitely that mm-hmm. it took this long for that dirt to mm-hmm. come out and mm-hmm. that the entire Canadian media and any of his enemies, which there's many of, mm-hmm. didn't find this dirt yeah. on. Mm-hmm. But I, I thought to myself, I'm like, I have enough other, I mean, personally, you know, now we're getting a little bit political here. I have enough other issues on purely political mm. decisions that this government's made. Mm-hmm. He's lost moral high ground, mm-hmm. right? Completely. He's completely yeah. lost mm-hmm. moral high ground mm-hmm. in, you know, being able to call out someone for homophobia mm-hmm. or racism mm-hmm. or anything mm-hmm. else, right? And... There's a lot of people who are very staunch supporters of Trudeau mm-hmm. in particular and the Liberal Party in general because, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was, uh, you know, Idi Amin in Uganda, mm-hmm. when, which forced out a whole bunch of South Asians mm-hmm. into the UK mm-hmm. and into, into Canada, yeah. um, you know, all the waves of migration that have happened in the 60s. Like, mm-hmm. this man's father was one of the architects of multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in, by many respects, you know, like a, a great leader in mm-hmm. the modern context. Mm-hmm. So... I see him, uh, I see like, you know, Justin Trudeau is a man who's been raised in extreme privilege. Mm-hmm. No question, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yet he's coming from a family and a lineage that I would probably hope to be a little bit more understanding, mm-hmm. right? And probably mm-hmm. a little bit more well acquainted with mm-hmm. the impact that such a decision would have. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't a kid, right? No, I mean, maybe no. the first instance yeah. he was mm-hmm. like 17. Mm-hmm. He's 29, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. if you're if you're more than like... 13, mm-hmm. 14, and mm-hmm. you think this is a good idea then, yeah. in the last 20 years, mm-hmm. you need new friends, mm-hmm. you need new people around you because mm-hmm. th- that, that shit's just whacked. Yeah, right? it's ridiculous. But now he's lost moral high ground, but it's also kind of 
twisted the conversation around racism mm-hmm. as if it's our prime minister acted in a racist way. Mm-hmm. So you've got on one side, you got people saying he's not racist. Look at everything he's done for immigrant mm-hmm. communities and refugees and whatnot. And that may well be mm-hmm. right. So, you know, he made a mistake and let's move on from it. Mm-hmm. And there's like, I've seen that, that same sentiment coming from brown people, black people, mm-hmm. Asian people, mm-hmm. white people. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a lot of people that support him and say that is not who he is. Mm-hmm. And yet we've got persistent racism against Jagmeet Singh, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the, his campaign. Mm-hmm. You have racism against all sorts of people who are campaigning in different writings mm-hmm. across the country. And then you just have these persistent structurally racist yes. systems mm-hmm. as well. So it's like taking one symptom mm-hmm. and it's made it like the main focus. Mm-hmm. And now if Trudeau apologizes or at some point we find a path forward, we've kind of moved on as a country. Mm-hmm. Well, Fuck no. Mm-hmm. no <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, yeah. We're, no, we're no better off mm-hmm. today than we were two weeks mm-hmm. ago as a result yeah, of this. No, not at all. It's, um, it, I know it's just a, it's a, it's a twisted, twisted time. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, with all of the experiences you've had, at what point did you start to articulate this in a creative way? Like you've been a sponge all your life, mm-hmm. but have you always mm-hmm. been writing? Have you always been creating? Um, so I, I've been writing since I was very, very young, uh, but I've been writing for myself. Yeah, I hadn't been like publicly like releasing or like putting my work out there. Um, I started writing, I mean, pretty much as soon as I could read. Because I remember like when I was a kid, um, I, come, I come from a family of big readers. And so um, my three older siblings were always just like curled up reading on the couch. And, okay. I'd, and I'd like run up to them and be like, yo, let's let's go play a game outside. And they'd be like, no, nah, we're busy reading. And at the time, I, I, I didn't know how to read. And so like I remember like running over to my mom and being like, hey, could you teach me how to read? Because like like. I thought playing was like the greatest thing ever, you know. Like, sure. like, like, yeah, yeah. Like, like, I just loved running outside, kicking a football, you know. Like, like, like hopping on my bike, etc. And so I was like, "What is reading that it could be more fun than playing a game?" You know, outside with my siblings. Huh. And I was like, "This reading thing must be amazing." And so uh, my mom taught me how to read eventually, like over the course of like a couple months. And then, like, once I discovered how to, like, read on my own, like, I was just like, phew, this is amazing. Because, like, all these worlds and, like, that I can dive into, like, I can, like, you know, like, be, like, a pirate on the high seas. I could, like, be, like, some intrepid explorer. And, and that's one thing that I credit my parents to doing is they always made sure that we had a lot of literature and media around us that represented ourselves. And so I never felt like I couldn't be something. Because we were growing up on Shoyinka and Achebe and like all these amazing writers who put blackness forefront and center to their narratives, right? And so, like, I know a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of like um, my friends who grew up um, in like predominantly white societies, they grew up, you know, reading. Um, literature that didn't represent them and and that's a struggle um that i can't relate to which is like a a great thing that i can't relate to because it's like you know it helped me but at the same time it's like it sucks that so many people grow up in societies where they not they don't feel represented through their media and Mm -hmm. through like their literature and so that's why it's so great that we have things like black panther and luke cage and uh, shang chi coming out you know like so that we can have that great representation on, on a mainstream level uh, because if it wasn't for my parents, like curating like our personal libraries, like if 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 we were just going out and you know like consuming what was out there, we wouldn't have that. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah no I, i mean i've always been writing these like little short stories and like used to like illustrate them and stuff and i'd always just been writing like occasional poetry and just like um just a lot of like stories since i was a kid right um i just didn't start putting it out there until relatively recently it's interesting you mentioned black panther because um there's a friend of mine uh who i was talking with i think when it came out it was funny because he is from nigeria mm-hmm. right and I think for a lot of the black population in North America yeah. knows obviously the roots are in Africa, mm-hmm. but has been here for so many generations mm-hmm. that there's those ties are very much yes. theoretical, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it's not, it's not necessarily tangible. No. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember him telling me he'd gone to see Black Panther. Uh, he found it entertaining, mm-hmm. but he found it kind of, you know, almost silly, like kind of, it was a caricature, right? Uh, the accents and everything. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. And this country that's Wakanda, which is, supposedly close to where modern day Rwanda is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sort of borrowing all these elements from different mm-hmm. uh, African cultures mm-hmm. and creating this thing. And I think when he had gone to see the film, he saw a bunch of, you know, young black youth mm-hmm. that were coming to watch a film and they're full on cosplay, mm-hmm. right? Like they're dressed up and everything. They're mm-hmm. going for it. And he thought the whole thing was kind of silly. Mm. And I, I remember kind of, I was listening to him and I'm thinking something feels, something feels off here. Mm. Right. Like, you know, I mean, everyone's entitled to their opinion, mm-hmm. but then I kind of put myself in the shoes of if I had never, ever seen myself mm-hmm. as a superhero, mm-hmm. right. Which I don't. Mm-hmm. Right. But if I'd never, ever seen myself represented in that mm-hmm. way, and this thing is now, you know, one of the biggest movies on the planet mm-hmm. in the biggest, you know, comic book cinematic universe that's ever been created. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's badass. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna get all over that. So yeah. I, th- I, I, I kind of said to like him, massive stars attached to it. Oh, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I remember saying to him, I'm like, well, you know, I mean, you know, like white people go, you know, cosplay all the time. Mm-hmm. They like nerd out over the mm-hmm. stuff. Like, if you're a black person that wants to nerd out and cosplay, and now there's finally a character mm-hmm. that you don't have to be. I'm the black version of this. Exactly. Why wouldn't you do that? Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's it, it's. I feel like something clicked at that mm-hmm. point for mm-hmm. him. Like it was a different way of looking at it because. Mm-hmm. As much as Black Panther may well be a caricature of many African cultures mm-hmm. kind of blended into one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe it becomes the first dialogue for some people to kind of discover, okay, where are some of these elements coming from? Exactly. I read a little bit about the artist that was behind the set design and mm-hmm. art direction there and, you know, how she spent so much time studying these different African mm-hmm. cultures and bringing different handicrafts mm-hmm. and ways of architecture. And there's so much... Uh, nuance within mm-hmm. African culture as a whole because it's so many different countries, mm-hmm. so many different tribes, mm-hmm. so many different languages. And I think that's what's lost here. Like yeah. people just stand back and see it's a continent full of black people. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a pretty ignorant thing to, mm-hmm. to kind of think, especially today. Mm-hmm. But in, in terms of just reading and, and writing, I recently actually met the CEO of LeVar Burton's company, oh, okay. that's uh, Sangeeta Patel. So it was interesting because I got to see LeVar Burton at South by Southwest oh, nice. last year. Last year, then I like? met her. Uh, it was I was a kid in a candy store because I grew up watching Reading Rainbow. <laughs> okay, nice. And then I met Sangeeta right after his keynote. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to talking. She's come on the podcast. We had a phenomenal conversation. I learned a lot from her. Mm-hmm. But her talking about LeVar and then me completely either by chance or not bumping into LeVar Burton mm-hmm. at the airport in Austin and wow. just having a quick chat with him. It was, it was quite an interesting experience because he talked about growing up in a single parent home mm-hmm. with his mother who was all about reading. Mm-hmm. Most of his memories were of him seeing his mother reading. Mm-hmm. She prioritized that. Mm-hmm. And because he, he said like, you know, your kids, 
emulate what they see, mm-hmm, right? Not what mm-hmm, you tell them, it's what mm-hmm. you see. So if you want your kids reading, you got to read in front of your kids. Mm-hmm. And, and to which I felt instantly guilty. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got a couple of young kids, so we've been doing a better job of not just reading with them and to but, them, but yes. reading in front of them. Yes. Mm-hmm. But it, he, he, he talked about the experience he had of, like kind of like what you're saying, like mm-hmm. unlocking these worlds. Because mm-hmm. you see books on a shelf. Yeah. But what you don't realize is it's a portal, yes. right? It's a portal into some other dimension, exactly. some other world, some other experience mm-hmm. that's not yet your own. Mm-hmm. You internalize that, mm-hmm. you make it your own, mm-hmm. and something um, something new and organic kind of mm-hmm. comes of that. So it's just, uh, it's really interesting that I think reading, because we are, I think we're innately creative. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can express it, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone can write, rap, mm-hmm. you know, draw, paint, yeah, whatever yeah, it mm-hmm. might be. But I do think that if given enough of a structure in a canvas, mm-hmm. and let's call that structure the words on a page, mm-hmm. our imaginations will fill in gaps mm-hmm. and go directions that, you know, you and I read the same book mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. maybe even have every other life experience that's similar. Mm-hmm. We're still going to have a very different image in our head. Definitely. That's our own image that will never exist for anyone mm-hmm. else. And that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. No, it's amazing. Like um, Stevie Wonder, uh, I, 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 I listened to this podcast by uh, Ali Shahid Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest. Okay. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Franny Kelly, who's a music journalist, and they interview a whole bunch of different people related to the music industry. And Ali Shahid Muhammad be- be- began like the first episode with a quote by Stevie Wonder where he said, Stevie Wonder said that like when people ask him about his creative process, he said like, oh, I'm like, I- I'm not the one like creating like i'm not the one like in charge he was like I- I- i'm a vessel he's like mm-hmm. call it what you want you know call it god call it deities call it the universe yeah. call it divine energy call it what you want but i tap into something and the music flows through me mm-hmm. um and that was the first time that i'd heard it expressed like that because that's the exact same thing when i write like it's not yeah. coming from me you yeah, know it's, like it's a flow state yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah yeah it's coming from something else i just tap into that flow state and it comes out and like almost like all the musicians that i know same thing you mm-hmm. know like all the artists that i know same thing like like it would be massively, massively like egocentric to say that, you know, like it's all coming from you and you are the source of like, you know, your creative right. faculties. No, because like it, 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 it's something else. It's something beyond. It's uh, I mean, like we, you know, both we're both poets and spoken word poets mm-hmm. writing um, last year for the first half of the year for whatever reason. I don't know what was up. It was just a very inspired time for me I, felt. I didn't try to write anything but i i must have written 40 or 50 pieces like there'd be days i was, I was on the subway and i'm just firing out two three Oof. short poems a day um at this point i've compiled around 130 pages of my own poetry and prose wow, you know that's... kind of slowly working through mm-hmm. it to kind of eventually maybe publish let's see mm-hmm. But I look back at the stuff that I've written, and it do, and it's not me saying that it's all great, mm-hmm. right? Because even yeah. that's very subjective. Yeah, yeah, you need to um, edit, and yeah, yeah. I know I'm brutally critical of my own work, mm-hmm. and I'd say most of the stuff that I've created in the last twenty years mm-hmm. sucks. Mm-hmm. Most of the stuff in the last few years, mm-hmm. I think, is good. Mm-hmm. Whether anyone else thinks it's is or not is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But I, I look at those words, and I think. There is no way if I sat down today, I could write that. Mm-hmm. I cannot write the thing mm-hmm. that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, some thought, and I, I love for me when I'm writing, I don't like to sit still in a room. Mm-hmm. Like that usually doesn't work for me. Okay. I think because I'm a very visual person, mm-hmm. 
if I'm out in the world, mm. if I'm on the subway, if I'm walking down the street, mm-hmm. some random thing will happen. Mm-hmm. I'll hear a sound. I'll see a passing, you know, a, you know, a dog walking down the street. Mm-hmm. Someone will be yelling at somebody else. Mm-hmm. And some visual cue or auditory cue will trigger a line or a word. Mm-hmm. And then if, you know, I used to just write by hand, but now it's usually on my phone because that's what's around. Mm-hmm. It's like I'm not. I feel like I'm a zombie. Like my my thumbs are just doing all the work, and the the, the words are flowing. Yeah. Um, and then I'll go back and I'll edit and whatnot. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. that that original idea yes, is yes. purely flow state. Mm-hmm. It's like I've been kind of hooked into some portal mm-hmm. at at that point. And so every every great artist in almost every genre has said more or less the same thing mm-hmm. that Stevie Wonder said. Mm-hmm. Right. I've met you know, the most accomplished uh, Indian classical musicians in the world Mm -hmm. and and been fortunate to spend some time with them, they'll say the same thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've met, uh, I mean, love him or hate him, at one point just in passing, uh, I met Brian McKnight when he was in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was a big fan. I think he's still one of the best Mm -hmm. soul R&B vocalists ever. Uh, And I remember asking him, like, the directions he takes his his freestyling Mm -hmm. and and, – and just the way he approaches it, like mm-hmm. where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And he said more or less the same thing. It just it just happens. Mm-hmm. Like he's got the tools. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He spent the time. Exactly. And those two things together, it just kind of happens. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's um, it's amazing. And in some way, I feel like we're all tapping into the same source. Mm-hmm. We're mm-hmm. expressing it through the vessel that we are. Exactly. Right. Like yeah. you're expressing it through the eight countries and the experience mm-hmm. that you're having. Mm-hmm. I'm expressing it through my own experience. Mm-hmm. But it, it shows us like the oneness mm-hmm. between us mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I just, I, I find that continually beautiful too, on top of the fact that we just, you know, like you were saying, we don't understand the brain yeah, really yeah. at all, mm-hmm. even yeah. after decades of mm-hmm. research. No, it's, 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 it's a fascinating, like, like it's a miracle of sorts, you know, that like we're able to tap into something and like express such like concise yet convoluted ideas through a wide array of different mediums. Cause like, it's always very interesting for me to look at um, artists inspired by other artists. So Mm -hmm. like to see like somebody who say, listened to an album and created a painting out of it, you know? Right. And like, it's like, it's a complete different medium, but saying very, very similar things and to see like what strands and what threads they pulled and what they highlighted, what they chose to like dim and like just like the interpretations that different people take on pieces of work, which is why I love um, like the MCU and all these comic book movies because I'm a huge comic book nerd. Like I've been reading since like I was a kid. And so like whenever people are like, oh, like we finally have Black Panther. I'm like, Black Panther's been around since the 60s. Like, you know, like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, like for like the comic nerds, like we, we've already been cosplaying Black Panther since like, you know, like the 63, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so like, it's interesting for me though, to see in the movies and seeing the TV shows, see how these like showrunners and these directors and these writers choose to interpret and take the character because like i'm never expecting something straight out of the comic book if i wanted that i read the comic book you know Mm -hmm. Um, i'm just looking to see like what their vision is and how they choose to like interpret this character and sometimes you know like i mean most of the time like they do an excellent job sometimes eh. (laughs) but i mean that's part of the artistic process it's it's never going to be everyone's cup of tea it's funny that you were just mentioning comic books because i was just reading i need to i need to actually look it up real quick because i was uh i was listening to uh, Sam Harris's podcast mm-hmm. um, the other day, and he had this woman on who was fascinating because she writes a lot about um, uh, mind and space and and motion. Uh, Barbara Tversky. Okay, she is a 
big fan of comic books. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason she was a big fan of comic books is because our, uh, our cognitive processes, we use language as one vehicle, mm-hmm. right? For thought, for expression, for communication. Mm-hmm. But, and as powerful as it is in one, in, in many dimensions, it's actually very limited in other dimensions, right? Like it would be very hard to be driving down the road and to say out loud all of the things that you need to do while driving. Because there's oh, so many yes, different things right. happening, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like words are very limited, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. There's one stream of consciousness basically mm-hmm. that can kind of flow out through words. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were, you know, an NBA basketball player, uh, you know, going through every single micro decision you need to make mm-hmm. when you're making a play and whatnot based on who's where on the court and how you're feeling, you know, all of those things, you couldn't express that through words. Definitely. Um, and a lot of the way that we perceive the world, she was kind of sharing her her research and the research of others is based on moving through the world, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the way that we interpret spaces, mm-hmm. right? If people are giving you directions on how to get from point A to point B, mm-hmm. most of us will probably start pointing randomly yep. in the air, mm-hmm. right? We'll, we'll use our hands. Mm-hmm. And the moment that we have to sit on our hands or force ourselves not to use motion, mm-hmm. we'll actually have a harder time explaining the directions. Mm-hmm. So she also talked about comic books and why they're really helpful, particularly for kids, because a lot of what is communicated mm-hmm. in an experience is not verbal. Yes. So mm-hmm. comic books are frames of a scene. Mm-hmm. So your mind has to fill in the gaps between the frames, mm-hmm. but a lot of what's in a comic book isn't even necessarily written, mm-hmm. right? There's the mm-hmm. words a character saying, yeah. but there's the punch that yeah, they're throwing. The there's the mm-hmm. direction that they're looking mm-hmm. to something that's sort of off camera, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And our minds start to fill in all of those mm-hmm. things, right? So she she's actually a big fan of kids reading comic books, mm-hmm. like, you know, good comic books yeah. for, um, to be able to really kind of help build out some of those cognitive processes. And I think comic books, I, I realized I loved them as a kid mm-hmm. and then I kind of just stopped paying attention to them for a long time. Uh, and now okay. I'm kind of curious to pick back up on them just because, um, there is so much more to our imaginations mm-hmm. to fill in than you can just necessarily write down. Mm-hmm. No, that's fascinating, honestly, because, so I, um, I manage a bunch of different like cognitive and like neural processing issues as a result of my strokes. Um, and that manifests in different ways. Um, and like, if like I'm having like a decent health day, like today, then like I can normally like, you know, like, um, process the world in, uh, like more neurotypical way. Uh, but if I'm having a difficult day, um, like if I just had a seizure and my mind is all wonky, um, it's difficult for me to like process and take in information. And so sometimes I can't speak. Um, and so like I have to like um, sign out like uh, what I'm trying to say. Um, but one of the things that I do when I'm having like a rough time, um, like uh, cognitively, is I I can't take in large blocks of texts because like it, it gets all muddled up and it confuses uh, my mind and I, I can't like digest a large block of text. And so one of the things that I do to like build my mind back up to be able to handle text is I read comics. And I've found that like mm. when I can't take in a, like a book, you know, like I can't read a book, I can read a comic book. And reading the comic book and like getting through a comic book enables me to be able to work my way up to be able to like read an email or like reply to like a text message, you know, because like the comic is somehow easier for my brain to digest than a text message or an email. So, I mean, it almost sounds, and maybe this is a crude way of putting it, it feels like you're kind of relearning so- something that you know you can do, like, mm. over and over. Mm-hmm. 
Um, or like if I'm just looking for like a way to like just like distract my mind from the fact that like, you know, like I'm having a rough day. I'm in a lot of pain. My legs are paralyzed. I just need something to like get my mind off of it. I just read a comic because like that, like re- like reading is very therapeutic for me. Also, mm-hmm. you know, like I'm, I lose myself in that world. And in that world, I don't have to deal with the fact that my legs are paralyzed and I can't get, get out of bed. You know, in that world, I don't have to deal with the fact that I just had a two hour long seizure and like it's uh, I'm an excruciating amount of pain, you know, in that world. I'm, I'm, I'm like flying amongst rooftops of Spider-Man, you know? And like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Do you, um, do you find when you're in that place, uh, and you know that like, I mean, you know what a, a good day looks like yeah, yeah. and you know, obviously what, what, what a bad day for day, you yeah. looks mm-hmm. like. And when you're in that difficult day, can you see the good day? Um, when I'm in a difficult day, can I see the good day? It depends on how long the difficult days have lasted. Because if it's like a day or two or three long difficult day streak, then I, I can usually see the good day coming. Um, but sometimes, it happens more rarely, but sometimes my difficult days run for like a number of weeks. And when it lasts that long, it's very, very hard for me to see it ever getting better. Um, because like... Like the pain just gets ridiculous. Like I'm getting next to no sleep, um, having like two to four seizures a day. Um, it's like like I go down to like bare survival mode where I'm just like, I need to make sure I eat something every day. I need to make sure that I take my medication. I need to make sure that I have to do everything to function uh, because like doing anything beyond functioning is just beyond my capacity right now, um, beyond anything that my mind could even like try to do. Um, like if I try to like do a little something extra, I just go into a seizure. So I just lie down. Um, when it gets really, really bad, I just lie down and like, um, listen to some music and just like hopefully wait for it to pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, but your, your brain at the same time, like your neuroplasticity must be through the roof, right? Like you're able oh, to yeah. do so much like the, the you, like i can only imagine what's happening in your brain at any given point in time like it's 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 amazing honestly like like i am like like i used to hate my brain and i used to hate my body because i was like oh like it's thanks to my brain that i have all these like um you know like um illnesses and and all this like um tribulations and trials but then i was like wait no a second like whatever illness it is like my brain is fighting against that you know my brain is incredibly resilient and i had to like reframe that and be like now my brain's got my back my body's got my back it's just whatever this illness is that's like you know uh throwing things for a loop but like no like in terms of neuroplasticity like i mean i i'm left-handed and that is like not what i was natural i was naturally right-handed but then the right side of my body got paralyzed, so I had to learn how to do things on my left hand. And so, like, neuroplasticity is definitely, like, youth massively helps that. Because what I've heard is, like, from because I'm friends with stroke survivors, but, like, most of them are, like, three times my age. Cause right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and, like, the um, my stroke survivor friends who I know who are, like, elderly, they're, like amazed by the things that i can do but it's also because i'm young and because mm-hmm. these strokes happened to me when i was young and the brain is just it's a lot easier for the brain to bounce back and to learn how to like do new things and to like be more plastic the younger that you are there's a one of my favorite books ever is by this uh, quantum physicist named amit goswami i think it's called a conscious universe mm-hmm. so the opening preface in the book is this fictional 
character kind of walking around at a it's a brain conference and he's talking to neuroscientists and neurologists mm-hmm. and uh, psychologists and he's asking you know what is consciousness and then you know the neuroscientist gives one you know very mechanistic answer to it you know synapses firing in the brain mm-hmm. and electrical currents and then the the psychologist talks about the ego and the id and whatnot mm-hmm. and they don't really resolve the in that conversation mm-hmm. what exactly they they think consciousness is mm-hmm. but he kind of finishes off with I, I'm, I may be paraphrasing but the statement is if the brain were so simple that we could understand it, mm. we would be too simple to understand it. Ah, right? Like, ah, like yeah. we're, we're measuring the tool with mm. the tool yes, itself. Yeah. Right? No, it's no, just, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, even, like, the things that on a, on a normal day that we do are so astoundingly complex. Mm-hmm. Like, we've thrown billions of dollars at robots mm-hmm. trying to mimic even the tiniest little bit of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, getting a... You know, Boston Dynamics now has these robots that, you know, walk on four legs or on two legs mm-hmm. and can do parkour and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But they're still very clumsy, yeah. right? <laughs> um, you know, the things... What's really amazing, actually, is, a you know, seeing your own children from, like, the moment they're born. Mm-hmm. And when they start doing little things, I think... Before I was a father, I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. Your kid's mm-hmm. doing something new. Like yeah. <laughs> he's, 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 he's touching his nose or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's, he's smiling. And, I, you know, I'm, that's cute. That's cool. Mm-hmm. But I think when you actually see those increments happening mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you realize the distance between those increments, mm-hmm. you know, like my, my, my kids, both of them, uh, when they were born, for whatever reason, like they wake up in the morning, scratches all over their face. Mm-hmm. They were scratching themselves mm-hmm. like at night. You know, with my with my daughter, we had to put little socks on her hands <laughs> while she was asleep and stuff. And when we talked to the the, the doctor about it, it's like, oh yeah, they don't actually know what these things are, uh... right? Like, so we we're we're kind of born with this fight or flight mechanism, mm-hmm. right? Everything from an amoeba, you know, right up to an elephant. Mm-hmm. We all want to survive, right? Mm-hmm. We perceive danger, and you're a baby who has been comfortably floating around in this like mm-hmm. fluid, like yep, in yep. this dark Amniotic. chamber. Mm-hmm. And now he, here you are outside and all of a sudden there's these weird appendages that are like wiggling and coming uh... at you. And so the kid doesn't necessarily know, the kid doesn't know, it doesn't have that level of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. doesn't know that these things with fingers are its own hands. Mm-hmm. And so is at the same time, you know, wiggling and scratching mm-hmm. itself and at the same time trying to run away from it. So when you go from that to a kid actually looking at something at a distance and trying to pick it up mm-hmm. and realizing it's too far for me to reach, mm-hmm. so I'm going to try and, 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 and move to get there, mm-hmm. and then they fall or they kind of crawl, like every little thing along mm-hmm. that path mm-hmm. is such a huge leap, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, eventually they're talking and they're stringing mm-hmm. together words and, you know, having existential conversations <laughs> or whatever it is. And you try to sum it all up and like, how the hell did this happen? Mm-hmm. Um, like we are, we're, mir- we're miracles, we are. full stop, yeah, right? Definitely. Like, it's, it's humbling. No, 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 massively. And like, like I am not a parent myself um, and I don't remember the first time that like, you know, like mm-hmm. the other, the, I was making all these leaps. Um, I saw it through my little sister, um, through just like babysitting her and watching her grow, but also like, personally like i've had to learn how to walk again three times you know right like i, I mean the first time was when i was a baby which is, you know like like everyone goes through that second time after the first stroke uh, 
third time after strokes two and three. And so, like, I've had this, like, visceral, like, humbling of, like, being reverted to, like, a baby-like state of physically being unable to, like, move my legs um, in a walking, you know, like, mechanism and having to, like, relearn all these, like, you know, neural pathways in order to get myself to stand up and walk, um, which is incredibly frustrating because like because <laughs> like when you're a child at the very least like that's expected you know mm-hmm. like you, like you're not expected to come out the womb walking and like you can't even you can't communicate and so you can't like let you know like that frustration out and you don't remember when you grow up like everything that you went through right right and so it's just like oh yeah like i don't remember not being able to walk as a kid you know like i remember like my first memory is like three or four um and so like being able to like fully like function mentally but not fully function physically is incredibly frustrating it was incredibly frustrating for me to go through but like I feel like it's a good preparation for being elderly um Mm. you know and like slowly losing whatever faculties and capabilities I have and also just like a good like you know like humbling experience for life in general just like like nothing you have is permanent you know like everything can be taken away like including your body including your mind at any time and you just gotta make best what you can do with what you have right yeah um your book Mm -hmm. Uh, i know you've heard this a million times but the cover is awesome thank you like i love the cover art uh dear philomena Mm -hmm. right so none of the credit for the cover like 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 goes to me at all. Uh, okay. the, the cover was designed by an amazing um, Saudi Arabian uh, graphic designer called uh, Mawada Amer. Uh, when she leave it leave it to you to find a graphic designer who's Saudi Arabian, <laughs> right? Like, of course. <laughs> all right. Uh, she's she's one of my really good friends from when I was in Kansas. Um, (laughs) I I met this amazing Saudi Arabian girl called Mala and we became really really good friends Uh, she's actually getting married soon so shout out Mala for her upcoming wedding Um, and Mala um, was like me and Mala are still really tight we talk every now and again Uh, she's in Saudi Arabia working and she told me when I was working my book she was like oh my little sister's a graphic designer like you should hit her up um, about your book cover and her little sister hit me up and she was like hey I'd love to design her book cover I was like sure thing like let me like you know see what see what you're working with at the time I was like eh you know like I'm just being nice but like you're 20 years old you're in school studying graphic design I'm not really sure if you like have what it takes to like design a book cover Mm -hmm. you know um, but then she sent me her work and I was like blown away and I was like, sheesh, like gladly, I'll, I'd love to have you on for, you know, like, um, as part of the team and the book cover that we ended up going with was the one that I didn't want actually. Okay. Um, yeah. Because, uh, like humbleness, you know, modesty, that's how I was raised. Um, you didn't want culture. your face all over the book. The, no, I don't want my face on the book at all. Cause I was like, that is like a massively like egotistical thing to do. And that makes me feel very, very uncomfortable to have my face on, on the cover of my book. But I mean, to be fair, it's kind of split in two. Yes. Right. Yes. So, um, and honestly what, like, like I like workshopped it with a bunch of friends and family. I sent out like the three book cover options, and I was like, blind test, you know, which one do you like the best? And everyone was like, the one with your face on it, the one with your face. And I was like, <laughs> like I guess I got to go for this, you yeah. know, because uh, like, it was the popular, you know, like, like it was what everybody gravitated to because everyone's like, this is a beautiful cover. Like if I saw that on a bookstore, I'd pick it up and be like, what's mm-hmm. this about? You know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I was like, OK, I guess that's what the popular vote is. Um, but no, that's all Mawada. Like she 
did an amazing job with the details, like the letters that are going back and forth in my face. Um, they have my handwriting on it, spelling out Philomena's address. Yeah. Wow. Like the, her, 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 her attention to detail and the level of like intricacy that she puts into her work. Like I just have to like big up her and like follow her on Instagram if you're interested in her stuff at Mawada, M-A-W-A-D-D-A-H. Yeah, I'll yeah. grab the link from you because I'll, I'll throw it up on the website along with a, a link to your book. But mm-hmm. so, I mean, the cover is already... Um, Intriguing mm-hmm. to say the least, mm-hmm. but tell tell me about the the story of this book. Mm-hmm. Like, what 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 is it about? Like, what are, what is what is it that you want the world to know about this? Um, so the story of the book, um, I like to call it a experimental epistolary speculative novel. Okay, uh, because um, a that's hard for me to say, and that, it's like a fun challenge, um, but also because. The book is told through a series of conversations, and so it's not told in a conventional storytelling uh, format. Um, the story of the book starts when I was in my mother's womb. Uh, the doctors do an ultrasound and tell her, congratulations, you're expecting a baby girl. So she's very excited, very happy, because she'd wanted two girls and two boys. And at mm-hmm. this point, she'd had one girl, and she um, very, very much wanted a uh, a girl who was more like high femme and hyper feminine than my oldest sister. Okay. My oldest sister, she is now become a different person, but in childhood she was very, very much a like tomboy, like roughshod gallivanting with my brothers, like playing football. So then she was expecting me, and so she was like, "All right." So she picked the name Philomena for that baby girl because um, she's Catholic and um, she, she's very drawn to the um, story of Saint Philomena. So she gives birth. The doctors say, congratulations, it's a boy. My mom's like, what happened? The doctors are like, sorry, I guess we made a mistake reading the ultrasound. It happens sometimes. My mom's like, no, you didn't. You told me I was going to have a girl, so I'm having a girl. Um, and so for the first couple months of my life, she was like a cute little baby Philomena. Um, and then uh, eventually, like my, my, birth, my birth certificate literally reads my name as baby, Bienkia. Because uh, <laughs> she was like, she was like, I wasn't expecting a boy. Just write down baby. We'll figure it out later. Right. Uh, but then she had my little sister. So then she was like, okay, I got my second girl. So like, you can just be whatever you want to be. And I was like, all right, sounds good to me. <laughs> but she's told me this story my whole life of Philomena is who you're supposed to be. And so I took the story that she told me of Philomena and of the like, you know, the girl I was supposed to be. And I decided to create a series of conversations between myself and Philomena. And I chose to focus on one year of my life for those conversations. Okay. And so the book is the story of um, my two strokes, the most recent ones. Um, and I like to call it the story of the year that I was supposed to die, but somehow managed to live through. Because uh, the second and third stroke, again, the doctor said I, was, I wasn't expecting to live past a year, but I'm, I'm, I made it. Um, and so I'm telling that story, but I'm telling it through me talking to Philomena and being, being like, yo, like I'm dealing with a lot. This is what I'm going through. And Philomena being like, oh, like trying to support me and also telling me what she's going through. And so it was a very interesting thought experiment to see, like, how would the way that I move through the world be different if I was born as Philomena? as mm. the girl that I was supposed to be, um, you know, because like, granted, I have a bunch of trials and tribulations, a bunch of marginalizations, et cetera, but I'm still a man and I'm still right. like, you know, like, like massively privileged in that regard. Like I can, you know, like, like walk down a street and like people are afraid of me cause I'm black man, but people aren't, you know, like, um, going out of their way to harass or attack me, you know? Mm. Um, 
and like I like move through the world with a ridiculous amount of male privilege, um, which like women don't, and right. which like my sisters don't, my friends don't, uh, like my mom doesn't, etc. Um, and so, it, and like also like the ways that like society like grooms women differently than they do men and like women are like pushed into like yeah. caring you know like like nurses and caretake you know like mm-hmm. that sort of career you know like versus like the man who's like you know do whatever you want to do like you know just live your best life you know yeah you know? I, it's um well first of all like just the whole concept i remember when you first uh, uh when we first met and i think you were mentioning it when you were doing your your feature set at mm. uh, Shabe Share. Mm-hmm. Like, wow, that first of all, the, like the book cover was already like, okay, sold. <laughs> Got, yeah. But the, the conceptually is just, it's so interesting. And I think it's very, it's an honest conversation to have, mm. right? Because I don't know why people struggle with this whole privilege thing so mm. much. Mm-hmm. I, there's some buzzwords today that quite honestly, I don't really care about. Like intersectionality is actually this word. I personally, I kind of, don't like that word. Okay. I understand what it means. Mm-hmm. I get it, but I feel like it's it's just it's a buzzword that's now being used to convey something. I see what you mean. Yeah, like with the original meaning and the original like you know onus behind the word means very different from like the way people are just throwing yeah, around yeah. sectionality these days. Yeah, yeah and yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. it's like it's token like mm-hmm. it's token wokeness, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's I like outside of criticizing words like woke, I hate the word woke. <laughs> I don't like intersectionality, and personally, I'm going on record. I hate the term racialized. That mm-hmm. I I just okay. I don't get what it conveys that other words don't, mm-hmm. but Men and women have very different experiences. Very different. Full stop. Mm-hmm. There's just there. There's no two ways about mm-hmm. that. Now, I I've, I find that it shows up in so many places that we don't even necessarily think about subliminally. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most um, profound realizations I had about this specifically mm-hmm. was uh, I was at a shopper's drug mart. This is some years ago, one nearby, and they had a really wide magazine rack. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, it was like a long shelf and then two shelves like kind of on either side at, at 90 degrees. Mm-hmm. And I, I just kind of stepped back and I'm looking at it left to right, left to right over and over. And I'm like, what, what am I seeing here? There's something, there's something that's, that's odd about this. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, I just grabbed my phone and I just kind of panned my, my, my camera across it. And then as I was doing that, I realized what it was. In the way that they'd organize a shelf, it's women on the left, men on the right. Mm-hmm. And you go on the left, from the very far left, you have like the really trashy uh, uh, magazines like The Examiner mm-hmm. and whatnot. Like just complete junk food for the mind mm-hmm. in every conceivable mm-hmm. way. Then you would get into, um, you know, somewhat less trashy magazines then you start getting into like the cosmos mm-hmm. and the vogues and mm-hmm. whatnot and then you start to see this transition into house and garden mm-hmm. and home and whatnot and then there's this weird gray area where you're there's house and garden mm. and then there's like boats mm-hmm. or planes mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and now you can see the gradation going from what is female mm-hmm. to male mm-hmm. so you go from like boats mm-hmm. to like hunting mm-hmm. to like you know whatever gun life mm-hmm. or whatever it might mm-hmm. be and then eventually you get into the time magazines mm-hmm. you get into the walrus mm-hmm. and all of these mm-hmm. and then there's men's health and then mm-hmm. maxim and all this stuff and then it descends into like wwe madness <laughs> but so i step back and i'm like okay wait a second the what we what i see on the shelf here is the contrived representation mm. or narrative that society wants of men and women, mm-hmm. right? That we all kind of agree to mm-hmm. whether we think it or not. 
And if you look at the intelligent stuff, mm. I mean, keep in mind, this is going back probably about six or seven years. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit different now. But the intelligent stuff, it, whether it was the news, the politics, yeah. the popular mechanics, mm-hmm. all of that stuff, even if it wasn't some jacked up dude on the cover, mm-hmm. it was sitting in the section that is Perfect. very clearly on the men's side mm-hmm. of this rack. And so I thought to myself, all of the good stuff that is even remotely intelligent and mm-hmm. useful is sitting in the domain of men. Mm-hmm. All of the stuff that we're giving women mm-hmm. is not necessarily negative, right? Because mm-hmm. there's some good stuff, mm-hmm. right? But it's not the decision makings over the future of the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's not science. Mm-hmm. It's not all of these different mm-hmm. things. And then it kind of it, it, it hit me that cons- the society, I believe, conspires to keep women from reaching their potential. Because if you put, you know, a group of boys and a group of girls like out on the same playing field with all the same opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, individuals will rise and fall, Mm -hmm. but there's really no difference. Mm -hmm. You're seeing a lot of professions where women are starting to not only outperform men, but out-index men Mm -hmm. and whatnot. But still making less. Yeah, and still making less. Mm -hmm. And so I I was thinking about that, and then, you know, a few years later, I have a daughter, Mm -hmm. and now I'm thinking, what do I want her to see of the world? Mm -hmm. What do I want... um, the world to be like. And I'm not the architect of all that. I can't mm-hmm. control everything mm-hmm. that's in the yeah. environment. But at least I can try my level best. My wife can try her level best. We can give her as many tools to face mm-hmm. these things as, mm-hmm. as she can. Because, you know, now having a daughter and a son, I can see how they play differently in the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. I can see how they interact with the world to some degree a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And those experiences are only going to get exasperated mm-hmm. at some point. Um, and I want to be able to empower them. But it's hard for men mm-hmm. to hear this for a mm-hmm. lot of men. They're mm-hmm. like, I'm sick of hearing about women's rights. Mm-hmm. I'm sick of hearing about Me Too and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, what about men? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, men have it hard. Like, okay, yeah, some men do have it hard mm-hmm. for various reasons. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that every woman's had the same chance mm-hmm. that you've had mm-hmm. because you're a dude. Yep. Um, and, and if and any. Honestly, like the same ways that like sexism and patriarchy, like, insidiously affects women it affects men in a different yes. way too yeah like the fact that like not a lot of men feel comfortable around the kitchen you know mm-hmm. like that is patriarchy you know like like how many male friends do i know who don't even know how to cook a you know like meal for themselves like like, like that's yeah. patriarchy like how many men like don't know how to practice hygiene and grooming and like you know like uh, like basic stuff like that yeah and i think we all carry it around too like i like as 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 much as i think i'm aware of this I re, I, you know, you, every now and then you, you catch yourself with your own prejudices. Mm-hmm. Like there was a friend um, some years ago I met and, you know, like we just met and we're, we're kind of hanging out and stuff. And I'm like, so what do you do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, I'm a nurse. Mm-hmm. And so my mom, um, uh, she's retired now, but she'd been a nurse for 45 years. Oh, right? every, oh yeah? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, shout out to all nurses. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Getting shit done. Um, but so... All the nurses I'd with save one nurse that I'd ever met that was one of my my mom's colleagues. Mm. Every one of them was a woman. Mm-hmm. And when he told me he was a nurse, I don't know what exactly I thought. Like mm-hmm. I was a little bit surprised. Mm-hmm. I was a li- but I did. I definitely. I'm coming right out and saying like there's some prejudices in my mind about like you know maybe thinking he wanted to be a doctor but couldn't become a doctor so became a nurse and all of these other things. And as soon as I caught myself doing that, I'm like, this is bullshit. Like I know how hard my mom worked and how hard her colleagues worked to save lives and you know carry the load of a system that often doesn't give them the credit it, it should. So They work like, a lot harder than a lot of doctors. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. And so I had to kind of undo that conditioning. And this isn't like, and this is, you know, from the son of a hardworking nurse, right? 
So you don't even know where some of these prejudices kind of play out. I think all of us have these biases. Mm-hmm. I think we just have to be at least aware yeah, yeah, that we yeah. have these biases. And, and, and then we and can try come our best to unpack and yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. come face to face with it and then mm-hmm. shut it down, right? Mm-hmm. Or understand it. I, I think that it's really important that, like, you know, we as as men actually have an opinion on this, mm-hmm. right? Actually mm-hmm. say something about mm-hmm. it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I feel better about the world when I meet people, like, you know, especially people as young as you are, right, doing this. And it's, it's interesting because you were saying, you know, I feel very encouraged seeing somebody mm-hmm. near 27, mm-hmm. you know, like what, maybe a quarter generation behind mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I see a lot of promise there. And then you were saying you met someone else who was younger yeah, than you yeah, and yeah. you, you mm-hmm. kind of feel the same mm-hmm. thing. So that, that kind of gives me hope. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, there's definitely a lot of hope for the future. Cause like, like my little sister is like so much, so far beyond than I was at her age. But I know it's because I've always talked to her like she was on the same level as me, right? Mm. Like she's six years younger than me, so she's 21. Um, but like since she was able to talk, like I never treated her like a kid, you know? I was always like, like, like if you're hanging out with me, then I'm going to talk to you like, sure, you know, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, uh, like I would my friends of the, of the same age, right? And so like that's just made her like automatically like a lot more mature than her peers, like at, at all stages. And so, no, there's, there's a lot of hope. There's yeah, of hope. I think, and that's the thing, I think we got to, we, we don't take kids seriously enough, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. they are, they are wise. Like, most, mm-hmm. most kids, um, it's come up a few times in conversations recently. Like, when I go pick up the kids from school, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be kindness month, mm-hmm. or it'll be like, you know, clean up the earth, like week or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you'll see all these beautiful paintings of kids, like, cleaning up, like, garbage, or, you know, here's the 10 things you can do to be kind today and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I'm like, those posters don't belong here. Those should be in every office and public mm-hmm. space where adults hang because mm-hmm. we're the ones that need to remember. Honestly. These kids already got this stuff mm-hmm. down. Yeah. You know, and I think the older we get, the more cynical we get. But um, I remember when I wrote uh, Baby Girl for my daughter, which mm-hmm. is just, it's, it's a love letter to her because mm-hmm. I want her to just be her. Just you be you, do mm-hmm. your thing, right? I love that one, by the way. Oh, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember when I was writing it, she's like, well, not so much when I was writing it, when we are shooting the video. She's like, why are we shooting this video? Why are you making this piece? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to play, yeah. right? Why are you doing this? Uh-huh. And I'm like, because someday somebody's going to tell you you can't do something because you're a girl. Mm-hmm. And two weeks later, sure enough, some boys in the in, at school. Two weeks. That's yeah, how long two, it Two weeks later, like literally two <laughs> weeks later, uh, she was at school. She was with, or in the after school program, she's with a friend. They're hanging out and they're playing with some superheroes. Mm-hmm. And there's these two boys that are there, and they're like, what are you guys, what are you doing? Mm. She's like, we're playing with superheroes. Mm. You can't play with superheroes. Girls can't play with superheroes. Wow. And she's, and I'm like, so she's telling me this just kind of nonchalantly. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and what did you say? She's like, girls can play with superheroes. Girls mm-hmm. can do anything. I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, that's cool. I'm glad you did that. Mm-hmm. I didn't make too much of it. But then later in the evening, I'm thinking, this is very innocent. Mm-hmm. It's just superheroes. Yeah, but yeah. how in this city mm-hmm. in this neighborhood mm-hmm. which is as mixed as it is with all the different kinds of families mm-hmm. that are here in this I'm day so and age young. do do kids at 5 mm-hmm. come to this conclusion that girls do this stuff mm-hmm. boys do that mm-hmm. stuff and and not only that those boys would pr- I'm, I'm speculating here they would think boys can choose not to play with superheroes mm-hmm girls can't choose to play with superheroes, mm-hmm. right? And if, if boys are not playing with superheroes, mm-hmm. it's because they choose. Mm-hmm. And this is, and I, I start to unpack that a little bit. I'm like, maybe it's not coming from their parents. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's coming from each other mm-hmm. or stuff that they're watching, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But like these ideas are already forming in kids mm-hmm. that young who are spending time with each other. Mm-hmm. 
And so I then I, I told my daughter, I'm like, see, that's why I wrote the piece, right? Because like someday somebody's going to tell you. Mm-hmm. And you know, along the way, people have told her more yeah. stuff like that. And she mm-hmm. usually just kind of ignores it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I don't know if in my lifetime we'll ever get to a place where it's going to be fully everybody's on the same playing mm-hmm. field, but we should aim for it. Definitely. We should try Definitely. and make it better. Definitely. And like, what does that do with kids? for kids with like non-cisgendered you know like like kids who might not necessarily fit in those neat little boxes of you know assign male at birth assign female at birth and identify as that and then they're trying to like you know figure out like oh like this is my this is my gender identity it's different from you know like what um like mommy and daddy are or what you know like people are around me um like if those kids like had more like examples and representation like of people who were like them, mm-hmm. you know, like that would like, like help tremendously. And like, yeah. and like if the kids around them would like have that representation to be like, okay, they're different, but that doesn't mean you should bully them, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. That's, um, that's actually something that Sangeeta, who's a CEO of LeVar Burton Kids, she'd shared with me. Uh, you know, she's, she's lived in a, in a few different places. Mm-hmm. She grew up in America and um, at the time that, you know, we grew up, we just didn't see, like, in especially in kids' books, textbooks, mm-hmm. whatever, you wouldn't see any character that was not white. Mm-hmm. Like, it would be very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd roll up to a Hallmark card store. I would never find a nuge, like, on a bookmark mm-hmm. and whatnot. And this is not my little sob story. Mm-hmm. The idea is just that you don't see yourself mm-hmm. represented. I get that to a point because, you know, you kind of just show up in a place, in a new society mm-hmm. that wasn't ready for you. Mm-hmm. And now uh, it's kind of, I think it's also ridiculous to expect that uh you know in a country of a million tylers that you know anuj or mugabe yes. should have a bookmark mm-hmm, there yeah, i think that's mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. too but if you never see yourself mm-hmm. and you're forced to constantly identify with somebody who is not necessarily exactly like you mm-hmm. um i think something gets lost there mm-hmm. so she's really made a mission and and and, and lavar burton through his company and, and his work has made a mission that in, especially in kids books are trying to introduce more diverse characters yeah, yeah, right yeah, like you know, why, why aren't there kids who like have two moms in a book you know yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. who, who like, have two moms yeah, yeah, or yeah, have mm-hmm. some sort of uh uh you know uh physical challenge or physical mm-hmm, enhancement mm-hmm. or wrestling with you know mm-hmm. their 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 gender identity whatever mm-hmm. those things are because if you can't see yourself there it's like you don't you don't feel like you exist to the world mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and you know then the counter argument is like i hear like the story you're sharing about you know you and philomena mm-hmm. And that, um, you know, in wrestling with the things that you've wrestled mm-hmm. with, like if someone's listening to this right now mm-hmm. and kind of caught the podcast halfway mm-hmm. through and doesn't know that you're black and yep. doesn't know that you've lived all over the world mm-hmm. and whatnot, it's just a human story, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, why when a character is white, mm-hmm. it's expected that everyone's just going to identify mm-hmm. with it, right? But as mm-hmm. soon as a character is not, is something else... You can't identify with that. Yeah, no. Like that doesn't make any kind of sense, mm-hmm. right? This is a human story. Yeah, straight up. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just. Uh, I think I'm an eternal optimist who's also a little bit cynical, but I'm just uh, constantly uh, reminded by how beautiful and nuanced the world is when mm-hmm. you know meeting people like you. Mm-hmm. And like, like I come across as like incredibly optimistic. I have like learned um, from like the way like people respond to me um but like i never want my optimism to make it seem like i don't allow room for um like grief and and like um like sorrow and all these and anger and all these emotions that are labeled negative but aren't really inherently negative right, you know yeah, like because yeah. like there's nothing inherently negative about being angry angry is anger is a response to something right and anger is a healthy response like 
it's how you express that anger that can be healthy or unhealthy or negative or positive. Like if I got angry and I smashed this table right now, that wouldn't, you know, like, <laughs> uh, I'd make for an interesting conversation. <laughs> but, but it wouldn't be the healthiest or most effective use of my anger, you know? Right. Um, and like, I, 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 I was in therapy for like a year and a half when I was dealing with my strokes and everything. And one of my th- things that my therapist taught me is he was like, why do you, why are you so like reticent to express your anger? He was like, anger is healthy. It's okay to be angry. You don't need to always like, like, you know, like shrink yourself every time you feel yourself getting angry. And so I got a lot more comfortable being angry with being sad, with being like with going through grief, you know, and processing these emotions because like, as much as I am happy and incredibly grateful for everything that life has given me at the same time, life has like taken a lot away and life still puts me through a lot on, on a daily basis. And so I just, I, I just like, like to acknowledge that, you know, like, like to acknowledge, like, you know, like it's not all roses and sunshine mm-hmm. every day, 24 seven. And that sometimes there's, there's some things that you can't necessarily like overcome. Cause I feel like a lot of people see me as an overcomer. They're like, Oh, you went through all these things and you overcame everything. And I did overcome quite a lot, but there's some things that I don't. Like right now, head to toe, my body feels like it's on fire. And that's something that I experienced 24-7. That's something that I haven't overcome for the past five years. I may never overcome and that I am managing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I tried to like stress, like to like temper the optimism and positive positivity with like some things cannot be overcome they can simply be managed because a lot of people are going through a lot of crap where they don't want to hear like oh it'll get better because sometimes it doesn't necessarily get better but it gets different do you find that you curb um let's take anger for example do you think you curb or at least used to curb that because of who you are as a person or family and cultural conditioning or do you feel that the world is not uh, is even less kind to an angry black man like like how, how much <laughs> like, like do, do, do you do you feel like you is there external forces that you perceive on you that make you curb what you would otherwise do definitely um like in terms of publicly i i, I very 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 rarely publicly express my anger like if i'm in a public setting i'm not gonna like be like um like expressing my anger uh like physically or verbally uh because yeah being an angry black man means being a threat like there have been a couple of times where i've just been like um literally just walking down the street listening to music and i'm seen as an angry black man and i like get pulled over by the police and have a gun thrown in my forehead and be like you know like what are you doing and i'm like i was just walking down the street i was just going to go pick up some milk you know like (laughs) white milk (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly white milk (laughs) (laughs) maybe i should switch to chocolate milk i'm 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 kind of i have to wonder i mean this is probably this might not come out right. This is probably the best time in the last uh, 500 or 700 years mm. ever mm-hmm. for black people. Oh, yes, yes. And it's still terrible. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, you, you, I mean, social media is kind of, um, it, it tends to amplify some things. But mm. if that many cops are caught beating and shooting black people, mm-hmm. if that many uh, cops are caught holding a, fa- a young family with young kids at gunpoint mm-hmm. over a kid taking something from a mm-hmm. store. If that many angry, you know, vigilante white women are out there calling the cops mm-hmm. on somebody just having a barbecue or whatnot, mm-hmm. when it's on camera mm-hmm. today, and there's every reason to believe that they're going to be spotted and outed. Mm-hmm. If it was happening at that extent today, when mm-hmm. it's on camera yeah, on the so record, what was happening before? Mm-hmm. 
But I'm I'm I, I'm I don't know what a particularly a black man can do today in in North America probably that is not cause for trouble. There's nothing. Guy hangs out at home in a towel, mm-hmm. doesn't go outside because he doesn't want to cause trouble or get in any trouble. Cops will show up there. Mm-hmm. Cop, you know, he's trying to help somebody, he gets in trouble, mm-hmm. right? He's like, he, he's the victim of something, still in trouble. Mm-hmm. Like, look at his record, mm-hmm. right? Or he was, you know, the there was that one gentleman that was shot on a bridge by this uh, this uh, this female officer, and I remember that there was a news helicopter that was kind of hovering over. Mm. And uh, the one of the guys on 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 cameras are filming this. He's like, "Oh, that's a bad dude." This guy was just he was he just happened to be a large man. He was like six four and maybe three hundred pounds or whatnot. But he's a black man, you know, being you know on, like getting out of his car mm-hmm. right and you know being pulled over for nothing, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, there's really not much you can do no, while being black no, today no, that yeah. doesn't draw some sort of scrutiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And and so I think that. I think that the everyone else has uh, we have an onus as much as I think we have an onus in a, in a country like this to also be uh, supporting anyone who's struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we should be uh, we should be locked in arms with the Aboriginal community. Mm-hmm. We should be locked in arms with each other to mm-hmm. uh, not against each other, mm-hmm. but to kind of uplift everybody. Mm-hmm. I find that um, in particular, like anti-black racism within the South Asian community and other communities. If it's affecting black people, it's a non-issue, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment it affects us, then that's when people really kind of get worked mm-hmm, up and they make it an issue, mm-hmm. and then they they start to campaign about it, mm-hmm. and they they you know they call our MPs and stuff. But if you see somebody for their color of their skin mm-hmm. getting harassed, mm-hmm. that should bug you. It doesn't matter what yeah. the color mm-hmm, of their skin mm-hmm. is. There was a there was an uh, an Indian man, I think, in his late fifties or early sixties, who was visiting family in the U.S. somewhere, mm. in the Midwest, I think it was, mm-hmm. he was just walking in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't speak much English or anything. Mm-hmm. Dark skin. Mm-hmm. Someone in their home in the na- in the neighborhood saw him kind of walking up and down the street mm-hmm. and called the cops and said, there's this, you know, scary-looking black man out there. Sheesh. Cops showed up. One of them literally grabbed him. It's on video. And he grabbed him, picked him up, and essentially just, like, choke-slammed him into the ground. Um, this This man who would barely speak English oh, isn't that, then in the hospital mm-hmm. and everything. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people were up in arms, like, how could this happen? Mm-hmm. Right. That, you know, this, this, you know, this man is visiting his family. Mm-hmm. He's well-meaning and mm-hmm. everything. So you, you saw some people within like, you know, the Indian community kind of get worked up about mm-hmm. this, but the underlying problem is Just that, that this to black someone thought he was black. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and it's not, he wasn't, he wasn't put in that position because he was Indian. Mm-hmm. He was put in that position because someone thought he was mm-hmm. black. And that's a problem, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a how, huge problem. How, are we, how are we okay with that? I mean, it's the same thing like Sikh people face all the time because people think they're Muslim because mm-hmm. people assume that a turban means you're Muslim, which is like... <laughs> yeah, like, dude, like, when was the last time you met a Muslim person with a turban? Exactly. But Sikh people <laughs> always get all of this, like, harassment and bigotry and, like, like hate against them because people think they're Muslim. And, like, like a lot of the Sikh, my Sikh friends that I have, like... They really, really like empathize with the Muslim plight because they, you know, like deal with it as an as a like unintended side effect. But like that should be shifted to like a focus of like uplifting and like um, helping out like marginalized Muslim voices where possible. Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I had um, uh, Jeff Pereira on uh, on the podcast a while back, and he's interesting just because he's got an. And I, I told him the story that like when I heard his name, I thought he was. Um, 
from Goa, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, I heard later on that he was Sri Lankan. I'm like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. The Portuguese were there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wasn't 100% sure. And then when I saw him, I thought he was black. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so, like, I went through this whole narrative in my head about mm-hmm. somebody that I didn't even know. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, he's got his head shaved now. He's got a beard and whatnot. And he's just kind of, like, because racial phenotypic expression mm-hmm. is fairly, you know, you have brown people that look black, yep. you have black people that look mm-hmm. like they could be Middle Eastern. Mm-hmm. Like, you just, mm-hmm. you can't tell for sure. Definitely. But he's 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 just vaguely black and brown enough mm-hmm. that everybody will mix him up at points. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he's lived to some extent, you know, the life of a black man, at mm-hmm. least in the outside world, and the mm-hmm. life of a, of, of a brown man. And, you know, it's got its pros and cons on mm-hmm. both sides. But it's just interesting how people from what he was telling me, the way the world interacts with him, depending mm. on what they think he is. Mm. I'm like, you're just a dude, right? Mm. And in his case, he's actually just an, like he's a gentle giant who's mm. just really pushing to like uplift the way men behave and, mm. and us uplift ourselves and treat women better, mm-hmm. treat each other better, mm-hmm. right? Like just be good men. Mm-hmm. That's, that's his mm-hmm. thing. Um, yeah, I know it's, it's, we're, we're complicated. We're nuanced. Definitely. Very, very much so. And so like, that's why like, I try my best to like not, not take up the conversation when it comes to arenas that I don't have necessarily lived experience in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, if you're talking about, like, feminism and women's rights, like, I'm going to uplift as many, like, women as possible, like, donate to any causes if I have any money, like, you know, like, do what I can to, like, um, like help, um, you know, um, the, the agenda and the platform. Um, but when it comes to issues that I can speak on, those I will speak on, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, you've been very generous with your time. Um, <laughs> where can people find out more about you and what's next? What crazy new adventure that you think is completely uninteresting is coming up? <laughs> um, people can find out more about me via my website, which is recently launched and I'm really proud of, uh, mugabibienkia.com. That's M-U-G-A-B-I-B-Y-E-N-K-Y-A.com. I, you can also follow me on um, Facebook. I got a Facebook page and my personal profile. Facebook page is uh, at Mugabs B. Uh, my Instagram is at Mugabs. My Twitter is at Mugabs B. Um, and in terms of what I have going on, I'm doing a little um, Ontario victory lap. Um, and it's like s- celebration of the fact that like my book did well and like just, just a little jaunt across Ontario which is going to be fun. Um, up next, I'm working on a one-man play, actually, that I'm in a fellowship for right now. So okay. I'm very excited about how that's shaping up. Amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm a little surprised that Philomena doesn't have her own Twitter handle. <laughs> uh, like, I, like, that's honestly the first time that has been suggested to me. Um, no, you heard it here yeah, first. Yeah, all right, I'll, I'll make sure to give credit where credits too. Uh, Mugabe, thank you so much. I, uh, I I look forward to you know having you back at some point. Definitely, uh, if you haven't already read the book, got to check it out. Everything behind the scenes about this man is as interesting as that cover, <laughs> if not more. So, um, Mugabe, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having right, me. Appreciate we out. You. If you've listened till this point in the podcast, I can assume only one of two things. One, you really dig this podcast. You just love it and you can't get enough. Or two, you started the podcast, you got busy with something else or bored, you forgot about it, and it just kept playing 
on your phone or is playing over your speakers in your room, you left the room, and right now I'm just talking to nobody. But if you're one of the former and you're really loving this podcast, please help spread the word. There's a lot of ways that you can help support the podcast and what we're doing here with these conversations. Of course, you can subscribe to us on any podcast app or platform of choice. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. If you really like what you're hearing, please help spread the word. There's a lot of ways you can do that. Definitely hit us up on Apple Podcasts, leave a review and a rating. You can also engage with us and suggest ideas for new guests and topics and conversations all over social media on Instagram at Awoken Word Podcast and on Twitter and YouTube and Facebook, we're at Awoken Word. If you like what you're hearing, share it on social media. Feel free to bring up any of the conversations or topics we've talked about here in your own podcasts or your own conversations. So until next time, I'll see you again on Awoken Word. Peace out.